out there this is going to be a mother of a show talking about some other mothers and joining me hawaiian brian the podcasting lion the king of the arcadian vanguard podcast network mr co-host to you his mother didn't breastfeed him she said she liked him as a friend the great brian last everybody aloha jim a pleasure to be here once again we can have you cut a promo on mother nature again if you'd like well no it's not nice to fool with mother nature you know, I never could figure out why that when I ate butter or margarine or mazola oil or whatever the fuck, all those things, nothing magical ever happened. I never got a crown. Mother Nature never popped up. Or was, the, was Mother Nature another, was she a butter commercial or was that a hair product? I have no idea. What you're, how did you get a butter commercial confused with a hair product commercial? Well, because I wasn't using either one at the time I was a child. You didn't use so butter I, in your hair? Well, or I didn't drink shampoo either. But nevertheless, when I was a kid, I forgot, you're not old enough yet. You're only a mere 40. You have not experienced anything in the world. But when I was a kid, there was a commercial. It was all over television. And it, it was not nice to fool Mother Nature. And it seems like I can see Mother Nature sitting there with some fucking butter. But now that I think about it, what would you be... Oh, you know what? It was the it was the margarine is what it was. That goddamn... Uh, that you couldn't tell from the butter. I think it was the storyline behind the piece. A lot of mothers out there for Mother's Day this, this weekend are going to know about that. They probably fed their kids on these things. And this, this whore claiming that she was the one that invented all the butter and had the trademark on butter was all over television, but the mothers knew the difference. Are you going to talk? Are you going to say I, I don't. I don't know how to follow up on anything you're talking about so far. There's <laughs> well, commercials for shampoo or butter and... Well, what's your favorite butter commercial? I don't have one. I've never thought of this question before in my life. Well, why not? My favorite if, butter if you, commercial? If you think it's butter, but it's snot? It's chiffon? You didn't do that when you were a kid either? How, how long has it been since you were a kid? Well, chiffon, I think, is the company you're talking about with Mother Nature. There was, I can't believe it's not butter, but do you consider margarine I in the category here? I believed it wasn't butter from the start. They never convinced me. They never See, said what so, it was. What kind of product? That, that's, you go buy yeah. a product, it tells you, we're not this. Okay, well, what are you? They, they didn't narrow it down. So you didn't know what you were consuming. All right. Anyway, have, have I buttered you up enough? Not yet. Let's, Keep going. Let's go on with the program. Um, I'm hungry. But it's been so long since we've spoken. Has this now been a world record? Did we do the last program that you and I 
collaborated on or possibly conspired on might be a more appropriate phraseology, but it, it's been three days and some change since we've actually recorded something. This was a long stretch. It's not like people didn't do stupid things, but we just didn't feel the need to immediately jump right on them and talk about them. But it's been a while. And the last program that we did was your show, The drive Through. And as soon as we, I had a feeling of accomplishment, when we got that out of the way, I mean, when we got the, the program finished, it was such a fine show. Hope everybody's listened to it. Anyway, and I said, boy, I'm, I'm just going to turn the TV on and sit down and relax for a second before I go back to the action figure mines. And I turned the TV on, and it's all over the news that Denny Crum had passed away, 86 years old. And for we were just talking about him here a few months ago because they had a news piece on the uh, local news that he was ill. He was 86 years old, as I said, but he's been ill and couldn't come out to his annual birthday party that his former players and the community throws him in the same place every year. They cover it on the news, all that stuff. And and obviously, when you're 86 years old, I guess these things happen. But then I was like, well, fuck. I was, I was relieved for just a minute that I'd got rid of you. I mean, that we finished our commitments. And then I turned the TV on to see that. Everybody, obviously, in the entire world, we have the global audience, knows who Denny Crum is at just the mention of a name, right? It, it could, you could even just say Denny or Coach Crum. Everybody would know, right? No, I don't think so. I think it deserves a, uh, an actual description. Or he a does. A biography. Say something. <laughs> say something, say just, something about the man. He just, just passed. man. Say something. <laughs> Denny Crumb was at one point, here about 40 years ago, not only the most popular man in the city of Louisville, Kentucky, he could have run for mayor and won in a landslide. He was one of the most popular people in the state of Kentucky, except, of course, in the environment of Lexington, a.k.a. the headquarters and hiding place of the University of Kentucky Wildcats. Denny Crum was the coach of the University of Louisville Cardinals during their greatest run as a college basketball powerhouse in the United States. And to this day, and let me ask you, Brian, and I know, you know more about baseball and you do basketball, but they still have halls of fame. How many Hall of Fame coaches in basketball or in baseball or anywhere that you know that get their Hall of Fame status and have their entire head coaching career at one school or one team? Not too many. Well, I was going to say Bobby Knight, and then I can't even say that. And, and, we, and we're not sure. You'll probably Google it here in a second as I drone on. But that's what Denny Crum did. He was an assistant basketball coach under John Wooden at UCLA when they were the college basketball dynasty in the 60s. And even before that, John Wooden is still the... He's the greatest college basketball coach ever. Yes. And so Denny was one of his assistant coaches and came to Louisville to take the head coaching job in 1971, was the head coach of the Cardinals for 30 years, retired, never moved out of town, never left. Never, and that's why I was always grumping about this last moron we had, recruiting violations, 
sex scandals, blackmail, fucking, you know, improprieties with the, uh, the, the recruits and all that other bullshit. You never got shit with Denny Crumb. And they've been doing, obviously, here in town, it's big news. And they've been doing the local news every day, something about or some of the former players talking about him. But this was a guy that after his players moved out of Louisville and went on to the NBA or then business, life, whatever, they would still come back and ask him advice about their business or their personal lives. He was that kind of guy. So everybody loved him. But the point is, what he did was Louisville had obviously had a basketball team for a long time, but they weren't the college basketball force that they would become. In 1971, he takes over, and over 30 years, he has a 700-win percentage, two NCAA titles, six Final Fours, umpteen players to the NBA, right? Not only that... But Denny Crum, and, and at UCLA, did you, well, you didn't know this because you don't give a fuck about University of Louisville basketball, was an, an interesting factoid on the news. He's the one that recruited Bill Walton for UCLA. And everybody laughed at him, said a redheaded white guy from fucking wherever the fuck is going to play at UCLA. Give that white guy acid, watch what he could do. There you go. Uh, but anyway, so... He's also, Denny Crum, noted for, you don't know this, but for years, the University of Kentucky, which was back in the old days, to the Adolf Rupp days in the 40s or whatever, that's who Rupp Arena was named after, a ba college basketball powerhouse program. They were the big guys in Kentucky, and Louisville was the feisty underdogs, right? And Kentucky would never play Louisville because they had nothing to gain. Kentucky was in a major conference. Kentucky was the big name. If they fucked up and lost, right, it would make them look like shit. And so when Denny Crum takes over and starts advancing Louisville's program and they start going to the Final Fours and they start doing all this shit, still we won the NCAA title 1980, the years of the Doctors of Dunk. Kentucky would not play Louisville. So finally, in 1983, I can't even remember what, you know, he was needling Joe B. Hall, who was the Kentucky coach at that time, needled him for years. And then finally, whatever caused it to happen, happened. I think after we won the NCAA title and then had that team and national television, they kind of couldn't get out of it. March of 83, the dream game. Louisville, Kentucky versus the first time, in, or Louisville versus Kentucky, I think, for the first time in 25 or 30 years or whatever the fuck it was. Maybe one time they'd been in a tournament game. And we won 12 points in overtime. And at that point, now every year people take for granted the great Kentucky shootout. But it didn't happen until Denny Crum revamped that program and put those teams out that they couldn't fucking avoid us. And anyway, so when they did the um, program, the Hometown Heroes program here in Louisville, where a bunch of people from Louisville have banners that are like four to six stories high on these buildings as you go downtown or by the interstate. In the first class was Muhammad Ali, I think Denny Crum, and Daryl Griffith, who was the star of the 1980 team. So 
He was a big fucking deal around here. But anyway, yes. And then, yes, he had a couple of bad seasons at the end, but they they let him retire. I think they kind of suggested he retire. And Jesus Christ, they've had nothing but shit ever since. It's embarrassing. And here's another thing. When Joe B. Hall retired, he died a few years ago, I think, sometime back. When Joe B. Hall retired from coaching at Kentucky and then he was retired from coaching at Louisville, they did a radio show on a local sports station here together. And for a lot of people, that was like finding out wrestling was a work. The fucking the Louisville and Kentucky coach being nice to each other, having a conversation. Oh my God, they should be fighting. It was that fucking... I'm telling you, sometimes if you, and it wasn't like in California where if you wore the red or the blue colors, they'd think you were a Crip or a Blood or whatever. They'd think you were a fucking Louisville fan or a UK fan. And you, if you went in the wrong neighborhood, you could get hit over the head with a blunt instrument. I'd wear gold and see what happens. What do you mean, the color gold or just jewelry gold? If you were just walking around in a suit made entirely of gold, I think you'd you'd probably, somebody would... Throw a rope around you and melt you down, wouldn't they? How much would that weigh? Well, ask Iron Man on the cover of Tales of Suspense 39. No, 40. He switched in. He switched from gray to gold. And, no, or was it 41? And you call yourself an expert. Uh, well, just off the top of my head. Let's go to Reggie's Corner, for heaven's sake. Now that we've talked, had Denny's Corner. What better um, thing to transition to from human death? We can go to animal death. Well, these are sad now. Denny, Denny lived a long life. <laughs> Supposed well, no. to that last one, which was a humdinger. Denny lived a long life and accomplished more than most human beings ever will. So for heaven's sake. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on the name Denny as opposed to Danny? Well, see, Danny would be short for Daniel, whereas Denny would be short for Dennis. So it's two different things. See what I mean? <laughs> Brandon from Wisconsin. <laughs> Stop it now. I'm going to bet the table. This is Reggie's corner, but there's no reason to goddamn titter about. No reason. No reason. Brandon from Wisconsin lost his best friend of 12 years, Buddy. And Lance Russell had a dog named Buddy. It was just a cute little thing. But Brandon says this house isn't the same. It's quiet. Scraps have to be picked up off the floor. No jingling when the fridge opens. No barks at the mailman. No more strolls around the neighborhood. It's been very rough, but your show has been helping me get through it. That's to both of us. From Brandon in Wisconsin. And Brent from Ottawa. Which sounds kind of like a noise you make right before a gynecological examination of some description. I've never figured out, is that named after a French great premier or politician or sports hero or something, Ottawa? I, what are you asking, Swami, about French history? It's Reggie's Corner. I thought I would, instead of me answering, I would have... Some of our animal friends answer. What's that? They said, who gives a shit about Ottawa? That's what the dog just said. They said, Ottawa's down the well. 
Ottawa's down the well. Well, Brent from Ottawa, come on now, let's get with the program here, would like to submit his best friend, his Jack Russell Maggie, for Reggie's Corner. She was given to my dad as a Father's Day gift by my ex-stepmom. The only good thing that expletive deleted ever did but maggie was 17 and was the only pure good in the world and and there was a picture and and maggie was a cute thing we apologize brent for the disrespect earlier in the segment and uh also for phil from raleigh um his little buddy cosmo passed away a couple weeks after his 15th birthday and cosmo was a kitten and that he had found, uh, well, he actually had, uh, somebody had found a little three-week-old kitten and brought him to the place that uh, Phil was working, and he adopted him, and they nursed him back to health and everything. But anyway, we apologize and our sympathies about Cosmo, and we got a first here to close up Reggie's Corner, and I've got to admit that this first one I've heard of, Maybe, Brian, I don't know. You get some of the emails. But Zach, and Zach is, for where is Zach from? Can't fucking find out. It doesn't say. Apparently, he's in hiding right now. But Zach has submitted the death of his pet hedgehog, Spike Jackson. And he sent me pictures of this darling little thing. This can't be real. No, I'm telling you. It's What's a, the name? What's the, the hedgehog's Spike, name? Spike Jackson, the little hedgehog. And he sent pictures. And he's one. He's sleeping with his little eyes closed. One, he's just staring at the camera. And one, he's outside playing with a, a pine cone. Uh, and basically, Zach says he was a gift from my mother when I was at one of the lowest points of my life. Two of our family dogs had just died in the same day. We had moved. I was feeling sad, not sure what I wanted to do with my life, and then this pokey ray of sunshine helped me out of that funk. Spike Jackson was there when I got my first apartment, helped me through some really tough spots mentally, helped me get my first girlfriend, ladies loved him, and was there by my side through my dad's cancer diagnosis and treatment. One of the greatest companions I could have asked for, Full of personality and heart, loved to go on little adventures, sometimes leading me to have to take furniture apart to save him. I took him to parties, to the park, on road trips, and people always got a kick out of meeting him and trying to pet his spines without hurting themselves. And when we, whenever we were in the car, I'd usually have one of your podcasts playing, and I like to think that he enjoyed them too. And unfortunately, Spike died young from a sudden health issue but uh he he brought joy and amusement to so many people over his short little life and he uh, just so anyway spike jackson we salute you today on reggie's corner this the hedgehog you know hedgehogs really don't make too much noise it turns out i'm checking this out right now here listen sounds like they're doing cocaine <laughs> Are you sure that's not Tony Khan's last press conference? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it says hedgehog sounds, and then one just ran away. Well, there it that, is. Well, Rest in peace, Spike Jones the Hedgehog. Spike Jackson, not Spike, Spike Jackson, Jones. Spike Jackson, excuse me. Spike Jones and his city slickers were an American <laughs> band of the 30s and 40s, I'll have you know. And, Maybe he puts uh, his hedgehog in little wacky suits. 
Well, it, 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 I'm sure he he probably had some on, you know, holidays like Derby Day. Did you see the picture of Harley? Stace tweeted out of her little her little jockey hat. It's I did. kind of a, it wasn't really a hat, it's kind of a harness thing. See, in my head, whenever people put clothes or a hat or whatever, sweaters on their animals, I always think this animal must be miserable right now. No, it was just for the picture. She didn't have to wear it around the house for, you know, all day or whatever. But she was just darling. But you, but, some, th- but you don't think she was miserable taking the picture, Harley, wearing this? No, she hat. likes to she likes to dress up. She's a little diva. <laughs> she likes to dress up. Okay. She's a little diva, the Duchess of the Dogwoods, Princess Poopenhouse. She she loves it. But anyway, folks, whether you've got a hedgehog or or what you've got, you also need Cornets collectibles, and that's why I'm here. Because I want to make you make sure that you have everything you need. And folks, if you need the Cornets collectibles you've already paid for, I am not only relieved, but overjoyed to let you know that by about seven days after you hear this, the sound of my voice, well, and and just in case you're listening to this at a later date, somewhere around the date of May the 20th, we are going to be completely cleared up of our backlog and all the packages are going to be winging their way to the waiting constituents out there that have uh, participated in our sale that have been going on for the last four weeks. And that sale is still ongoing. We've got, I can't even keep track right now, but between 200 and 250 of the breast cancer pink action figures still available. $10 from each goes to the American Cancer Society to fight breast cancer and We've already sent out the April donation with $6,900. Thank you, everybody. But we still got some of those available. The Inside the Ropes magazines are going fast. Uh, And the Inside the Ropes DVD even faster. However, there's a limited amount of the magazines, so get those while you can. And also the fine T-shirts and more. And boy, howdy, just go to jimcornette.com and look at the incredible work that Hotchkiss Featherbottom and the whole Featherbottom family, you know, because we did the sale, Brian, and we, you know, we, we were swamped there, and, and I wanted to get things out even quicker. This is the quickest we've ever cleared a backlog. Boy, you know, uh, this was slicker than whale shit in an ice flow compared to some of the backlogs we've had in the past, but I wanted to bring on another one of the Featherbottoms, you know, because Hotchkiss' cousin Chester has been unemployed for a while. He's had some issues in the past, but unfortunately he couldn't pass the background check. So we, we couldn't bring him on board, but it's the damnedest thing. He was sitting in his living room last week and his wife came in and said, Hey, our neighbor says you're a pedophile. And Chester set up and said, Hey, that's a pretty big word for a 12 year old to be using. So we couldn't, we couldn't really find a spot for him in the organization. JimCornette.com for all those orders that are going to be flinging my way. There's going to be something flinging your way. Well, nevertheless, before we talk about any of the modern wrestling, you know, every time lately that we talk about a WWE program, because it's epidemic there. I mean, AEW is all over the page. Sometimes they'll start a match and go right to break when you wish you could see it. And other times they'll start a match and stay with it to the point where you're like, please, I'll, I'll hurt children. If you'll just let this stop. 
but the WWE has a habit of starting a match and doing some kind of allegedly gripping spot, big dive, big bump, big whatever, where then they go to break in like 90 seconds or two minutes or whatever, and then there are commercials for three and a half or four minutes. And I think it disrupts the flow of the match, obviously. And, you know, as, as well, I think you see these entrances that are interminable and the interviews that go on forever. And even the ring introductions sometimes, if they do in-ring intros, last longer than the match does on camera, sometimes even in both segments. So we always say that diminishes, and I think it does, it diminishes the importance of the match, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that's why a lot of people sit on their hands in the WWE audience because they're conditioned the only time that something really good is going to happen is in the live interview with the stars where they get in a fight and they're looking for entrances and sing-alongs and the match is like the time that they sit there and tolerate it or they get up and take a piss. Is that in any way, Brian, have I communicated this appropriately? I think so. I mean, it's a frustrating thing about watching WWE TV and it seems like there's a pattern where you watch the pay-per-views, and unless it's one with just stinky matches, the pay-per-views are usually pretty good, and it's usually predominantly wrestling. Yes. And then you get excited, and you go to the next night on Raw, or two nights later on Raw, and it's right back to 80 to 85% talking, and then another 5% of backstage talking, and then maybe 10% in the ring, and maybe one of the three matches will be one that anyone would care about and that match will be cut up by commercial breaks so that it's it's almost impossible to actually watch and enjoy well and so anyway the point i was making with that is that i always say huh two minutes to break and i complain about that and the formatting of the show and i've mentioned it a few times but i went back and got an old format um this is an ovw format but smoky mountain television could have been the same thing. Ring of Honor television, same basic principle. We had longer matches on Ring of Honor television than were in the territory days on TV and more competitive matches, and really longer matches than we had in OVW because OVW, I wanted to get most of the guys that were full-time on in the program exposed on TV and also didn't want to have... a constant diet of 20-minute matches in a wrestling school promotion. But the point is, there's ways that, even with TV limitations, you can allot your time to where your points get made, and you still give time where it's needed to wrestling, or give time where it's needed to fucking telling a story. And one of my favorite programs, I've mentioned it before, but not in a television formatting viewpoint it was the ovw television where we finally did the loser leave town match between doug basham and the damage and this was because both of them as the basham brothers were being called up to the main roster in smackdown this was august of 2003 and but even though they were both going because i've told this story before they had been a tag team a heel team 
for like a year, year and a half and were fantastic and excelled at everything <laughs> and they wouldn't bring them up to the main roster. So finally, for our business uh, and Six Flags events that summer, I switched Damage a Babyface on Doug Machine and started a program between the two of them and that's when they decided to call them up as a tag team. So I was having to explain why, even though they were being seen on SmackDown as alleged brothers and partners, they were at each other's throats in OVW, and I had the somewhat the benefit that the crowd had been with us for a long time, and they'd seen these guys over the years, so they knew they were both local, and they knew that there was some jealousy in the past, and we just told the story that Basham had, had talked his... Uh, valet Nikita into romancing John Laurinaitis into bringing Damage to SmackDown as Basham's partner in an effect uh, in an attempt to humiliate him and get him to quit wrestling. And I did not know that my angle in 2003 was prefacing <laughs> real life goddamn events that would take place with good old John Laurinaitis a decade and more later. But I did it first, folks. So, to, hey, you think developmental didn't have cutting-edge broadcasting and booking in those days? <sighs> Penis power. As I swear to you, and you know what? The anniversary show that we did the next month after this TV, we did our anniversary in the new arena, and Laurinaitis appeared there in a tag team match. <laughs> I presented him as the guy <laughs> that was that was in charge of... <laughs> basically turning all of your favorite uh, to the OVW fans. I said, this is the guy that's in charge in the WWE of giving all your favorite OVW wrestlers, these horrible gimmicks and burying them. And when he came out, he had more heat than he had ever had in a wrestling event in his life. And he did <laughs> anyway, nevertheless. So on this night, I had one piece of business there was the main point of the program was the loser leave OVW match, the ultimate blow off between these two guys that had been in the past, they'd been enemies. Then they joined together as a group and been partners and champions. And now they've split up and good has to triumph over evil in, in my universe in this instance. And that, that was what the TV show was built around. We had one other match. And I'll explain why in a second when I go over the format. But just so you know, the opening dark match that night, August 2nd, 2003, well, that, that was the date that it aired. So that was a Saturday. The Wednesday night we taped it would have been, what, July 30th. The opening match was Aaron the Idol Stevens and Mike Mondo against Matt Capitelli and John Hennigan. Later to be known as Johnny Thunder, Johnny Nitro, Johnny Impact, Johnny... Johnny Johnny the pumpkin eater everything but anyway and then we start the program and as I said we've got one other match which is for the southern tag team title that's our tag team championship and since the rest of my television is being built around blowing something off I wanted to keep something going that we were having not only on our regularly on our television program, but is leading to Six Flags and live events around the area. And it was the 
Disciples of Sin, Seven and Bane against Tank Tolan and Chris Cage, the team known as Adrenaline. And Nova was in their corner because he had a legitimate leg injury and was still on crutches at this point. He'd had knee surgery, but he was their babyface mentor and had kind of started the team. And then Tank came along and took his place when, when he was hurt. So we start with a cold open, which is basically a VTR interview from the disciples saying that they intend to regain the Southern Tag Team Championship from these weasels here tonight on the program. We fly that right into our open, and we've got, we're have got we a minute and a half into the program. I don't want to waste time, so we come right out of the open, and that's the, obviously the open is the animated open with the music, the theme, and the highlights flashing around. And we're immediately playing the heels music. And here they come. You see some of the talent on camera as and coming in dressed to wrestle as soon as you come out of the open while the announcers, that would be me and Dean Hill, billboard the program. Hello, welcome. Tonight you're going to see an historic match in the Davis Arena here in Louisville as we say goodbye to one of two of our all-time greatest stars, blah, blah, blah. But right now in the ring for the Southern Tag Team Championship, here's the challengers. Boom, we go to the ring announcer. And they're introduced. That takes 45 fucking seconds. I know they didn't have to walk through an NBA arena. But they get their music. They get their beauty shot. A quick ring introduction. And then fade the music. Here comes the baby faces. And they enter and they're introduced. And now we are three minutes into our program. And we're ringing the fucking bell. And because the, again, the main thrust is the main event. I want these guys to have a good little tag team match with some action leading to a complete brawl because we're building to a fucking street fight kind of match and blah, blah, blah. So I've even got the notes on the back of this format. Uh, I won't go through the whole thing, but for timing purposes, I give them six minutes to have a match. That means that the baby faces shine for about two minutes. They do some nice tag team spots. And then I gave them a heat spot, which was cage, go to shoot seven off seven blind tag, Bane reversal, seven drop down Bane spine buster. Boom. Nice tag team move, but behind the referees back by the heels. And now I gave them notes. You got about a minute and 45 seconds. Get some fucking heat. And I used to tell the guys, you need to be able to hit time cues on TV, especially down to a quarter of a minute. So we would time everything in 15 second increments. Also, it was easier to count in my head. But if you could hit cues within your 15 second parameters and start to learn how to do it in your head, then you were good for live television because this was live to tape. We couldn't post-produce. We've talked about that. We didn't have the budget. Anyway, they get a minute and 45 of heat and they get a minute and 45 cue to go. That means that at one minute and 45 seconds before they're supposed to be out of there, they get a cue from the referee. It says, go home. And if they do exactly what we have discussed in the right way without milking anything too long or getting lost or rushing through it and being too quick, 
then they'll come out even. And basically, that was the finish was hot tag to tank, comeback, false finish seven, Bane save, cage into Bane, tank headlock seven, seven shoot tank off, sin trip, seven on tank, Nova around, nail sin. We could hit women back in those days. Seven headlock tank, tank shoots seven off. Now he's coming where Nova is. Nova trips him with his cane. So they've done tit for tat. Bane blinds Cage, dives out, gloms Nova. Tank comes out on Bane. Seven comes out on Tank. Cage comes out, grabs the cane, and clears the heels out. Referee calls for the bell, no contest, and the heels bail to the entryway. Babyfaces protect Nova. That's a minute and 45, and they did it. Boom, and we're on time, because did I mention we're live to tape? We can't post-produce. I know that was relatively quick, but either for that or for the rest of the show or any show you did for OVW, although you're the commentator, what notes, if any, were there specifically for commentary? Like, what were you talking about during that match? Are you talking about the big main event to come or the thing that's happening right in front of you? Again, it's only a minute 45, so you could only do so much. Oh, no, you're calling the... See, here's the thing. And by the way, this these were the notes for the talent. If you went to OVW, that's the way you got to finish. And if I had to fucking slow down and goddamn walk you step by step through it, I gave you fewer finishes. So guys learned, hey, that's a, you ought to heard Flair call a fucking finish for a goddamn match. Hey, you do the ding and the ding, and he's making motions and slapping his shoulder, and I'll give you the deal, and here we can, yeah, and the deal, and boom, double bridge, and there you go. That was a fucking finish from Flair sometimes. But anyway, there were completely separate announcer notes. But yes, at the start of the match, I would, obviously, we would establish that the match was going on, what the stipulations were, it was for the tag team title, blah, blah, blah. Then I would also talk about the big main event and how we're going to be seeing throughout the program highlights from this long-running rivalry. And then I would have been calling the action, except then, boom, when the heat spot happens, then you start paying more attention to the heels and drawing a little bit more sympathy for the baby faces, but you can still drop in things like, and of course, Six Flags this Friday night, we're looking for a great crowd. Oh, there's a big spine buster, whatever. But once you see them going into the go home sequence, you're on that because that's the story that you want the viewer to be left with. So as soon as they went into that, I would have been calling what was happening and illustrating Oh my God, sin is, and see that I'd already given sin instructions. Don't interfere throughout the match because she's going to trip in the finish. When she does the trip, boom, then here comes Nova. You've got to make sure that people know, oh my God, here comes Nova on that crutch. He's got one bad leg, but he pops her and she takes the big bump. But right then the baby faces are about to give the heels a taste of their own medicine. When the heel comes right to where that the baby face was tripped by sin. Nova's there to trip him. You've got to, ah, tit for tat. And then they all just get in the goddamn schmaz, and the referee has no choice but to count them out. And it's not a fucking one-minute count out. You have four guys plus a guy with a cane and a woman wailing away at each other. You're not going to stand there and count like they do in AEW. You're going to give a legitimate 10 count while the people are up and the action's going on and the bell and the bell and hearing that 
is what settles the fight down in some instances when they go, what happened, what happened? Jesus. Anyway, you're ready for seg two. Yes. <clears throat> and once again, this is a one-hour program, and the television station got four and a half minutes of commercials. Of course, a one-hour program in television is either 58, 30, or 59 minutes. We were doing 59, so TV station gets four and a half. That means we've got 54, 30, and we have approximately four and a half minutes of commercials, although sometimes in busy seasons I would steal an extra bit of commercial time in program content. But that means that basically we're we're shooting 48 to 50 minutes of program time. So again, and also this is, I know this is not a network or national cable budgeted production. We Yes, that gives you the incentive to use more bells and whistles and take up time here and there with all the money you can spend, but we were getting to the meat of the matter and telling the story. We come back at the top of segment two to the announce desk where Dean Hill and myself again preface one of the most historic matches in the history of OVW will take place tonight. One man will leave. Either Doug Basham, Machine, or the Damager. Two men who you have seen here from the start of their careers. Let's take a look back at the rivalry that began from a friendship. Boom. And we've got a nine-minute and 45-second history package going all the way back to, and the people knew the story. Doug Basham was Danny Davis's nephew. He was also the first person that Danny Davis trained as a wrestler when he retired. And he was the first top guy in OVW when it was a very small independent promotion wrestling school here in the mid-90s in Louisville. And then, basically, the story that we told retroactively when Doug Basham came back to OVW about two and a half years before this was that Doug Basham had become... Actually, what happened was Doug Basham got a job at Ford and they moved him to a shift where he couldn't work the wrestling shows, but he was making nearly $100,000 a year, some ridiculous amount of money, right? So he had to quit wrestling for quite a while. But when he came back, we retroactively told the story that Doug became jealous of Danny Davis's relationship with his second student, Nick Dinsmore, who was the second top guy in OVW. And as a result, when Doug had come back to the company, he came under a mask as machine and leading a group called the Revolution that was trying to take over the company. And he was dropping veiled hints about his birthright, how he was promised that he would be part of this. And later on, when he was unmasked by Dinsmore, Danny Davis' surrogate son, he then revealed that he said that Danny had promised him part of the company years ago. And Danny revealed that Doug Basham was a jealous bastard of Nick Dinsmore and had left and blah, blah, blah. So we had all this shit going on. And then Damaja comes in as the fourth student behind Rob Conway. See, all these guys, everybody talks about the, the class of 2002 and Brock Lesnar and Batista and Randy Orton and blah, blah, blah. These were the guys that I was basing my program around and were drawing the money in OVW because they'd already been trained and they were already established. 
and we were teaching these other guys from scratch. And so while they went on to be Hall of Famers, they couldn't sell pussy on a troop train in their first week in wrestling school. Cena was different because he could talk. But anyway, so Damaja and uh, agrees to join forces eventually with Basham against because Damage has always been that kind of guy, that wild fucking loose cannon against Dinsmore and Conway and you got the family feud, right? So we do a 10-minute history package going back a year and a half with clips and highlights and video of all the things that have gone on. And then I stole, researched an idea from, was it Cena and Rock or who was it that they did in like the early 2000s, one or so they did, or maybe Austin and Rock, the My Way or the Highway video. You remember what I'm talking about? I do, you but think I don't you're remember. special. Yeah, I the, can see it in your eyes. Yeah, they, shitty song by Limp Biscuit. I forget who. I may have been Austin. Well, yeah, but nevertheless, it makes a great fucking wrestling video. So I sat up all night one night over at the arena and edited a fucking Damage and Machine video. It was the same song, and we played that to the television audience while in the arena because we didn't have screens. And we also weren't going to have people come to the live event to watch goddamn television. We had Molly Holly versus Jillian Hall in a dark match and John Heidenreich against Mike Bell. And the people were happy as clams live in the building. And then we came back in segment three, very briefly, a short segment to set some things up and to not bore the people while in the dark in the dark, while in the arena, not televised, we set up our chairs and got our things set up for the main event. We just had locker room interviews for 30 or 45 seconds apiece with both camps, Damaja and all of his seconds, the OVW uh, originals that were behind him, the baby faces. And then we go to the heel locker room with Machine and his members of the revolution. And they both say, well, we hope that we're going to win, but if not, you know, they say their goodbyes. And Jillian Hall, she was cute then, 19 years old or whatever. She gives Dinsmore a little kiss on the cheek. It was so fucking sweet. Looked like Shirley Temple back then. Anyway, and then we play the rules package for the home audience. This match, because it calls for it, is no time limit and no disqualification, something that you don't normally see, almost never saw on OVW television. And it's not because it's going to be a street fight or a garbage match. It's because that's the way that traditionally you promised the fans there will be a winner. Nobody's going to be disqualified and nobody's going to be counted out and they're not going to go to a draw, right? And then. What's next for a heel to fuck somebody? A run-in, right? So the stipulation of this match is that all parties in the revolution will be handcuffed to an opposite member of the OVW contingent. So you had Rob Conway handcuffed, I believe, to Nick Dinsmore. You had Matt Morgan, the seven-foot giant, handcuffed to Mark Magnus. You had Jillian Hall handcuffed to Nikita. 
You had Johnny Jeter handcuffed smooth Johnny Spade, all of them at ringside. And the referees, Robert Briscoe and Ray Ramsey, would have the handcuffs. So the match has been set up to where it's a fair fight and the heel cannot cheat and it's the biggest stakes possible on the line. Also, for did I mention, for the OVW Heavyweight Championship and the loser leaves. You don't need to put hats on a hat in your match when you have all the stipulations that sell the match for you. If they'd opened up, we couldn't do blood in Kentucky anyway, but if they'd opened up now bringing in chairs and chains and sticks and beating each other over the head, then that's a hat on a hat. Now it's down to a fucking contest and they can work, right? And segment three, 30 seconds a minute, minute and a half, minute 45, two and a Segment three with the locker room interviews and the rules package was two and a half minutes. I'm putting time in the bank because you have to take commercial breaks on television. I understand that. There's TV commitments, but it's how you allot your time. And if I'm going to have a long match later, I do a short segment earlier in the program. Then segment four, here's the heel music, the heel group comes out not the top heel but the heel group and they are introduced in 30 seconds and then you cross fade to the babyface group music and here comes the babyfaces and they're introduced and the referees then handcuff all the parties before you see the participants so everybody understands what's going on and that just took well actually the referees were not like, I should have had Dean Hill handcuffing everybody. He can snap them on you. The referees were, were a little slow with the handcuffing, but that was less than two minutes for two introductions of two groups and some handcuffing. And then you play the damage of music, because even though he's the babyface, he's the challenger. He's coming out first. He gets a big entrance, but no introduction. We're going to do that in the ring. When we come back, folks, the most important match ever. And I've gotten another short segment of one and a half, two and a half minutes. But I've put that in an area in the show where I got both those commercial breaks in the same quarter. So I wasn't fucking breaking myself to death. And our breaks on local television were only a minute or a minute and a half because I could put my commercial spots where I wanted as long as I gave the station their four and a half minutes. So we didn't stay gone too long. Am I boring you yet, Brian? Not yet, but keep going. All right, you'll, you'll get there soon. And then in seg five, we get down to the meat of the matter. Here comes the heel. As soon as we come out of break, his music is playing and you see him. Doug Basham machine enters, and then Dean Hill does the in-ring introductions and the referee gives the on-microphone instructions to both men. And you realize it's no time limit, no disqualification, blah, 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 but the loser will leave OVW. And all of that that I just described takes about two minutes. And now I've got nine minutes from bell to break because I've saved up some of my time. And this match starts and... 
in this instance, these guys were graduates of the program. I didn't make any notes. I didn't give them. They knew who needed to go over, and I told them to work out their match. And when I was able to do the format, I told them basically how much time they had. So they worked it out there, and the only other thing that I told them was get your heat spot in the middle so that we can go to break on it. And that's what they, and we gave them a cue because uh, by that point we had the referees wired. So we gave them a cue every minute counting down. And this was like their, what do they call it in college? The graduate thesis where guys that have gone through this program, they're allowed to call their own match. They're told how much time they've got. They're given cues counted down eight minutes to break, seven minutes to break, or however we gave it to them. And they got to have their match and hit their cues. And that they had one of the best matches we've... And remember, on OVW television, we did have Kurt Angle a time or two. And we had Benoit. And we had a, a number of great talents, but this was one of the best OVW matches that we ever had on television. They tore... And the place was... Not only do we have every seat full, but we this was the one of the nights we had the friendly fire department that wasn't going to turn us in or get us in trouble, so they were standing all the way to the fucking ticket counter. And everybody, as soon as the lockup, they were with this thing through the whole deal because they knew these guys, they knew the history, and they knew something was happening. So it was a great fucking crowd. But anyway... They go the nine minutes, and they do their heat spot, and we go to the break with Damage and Jeopardy, and I can pitch, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to take a commercial timeout, but please don't go away. Damage's career, his, his livelihood in OVW is in Jeopardy. We'll be right back. Boom. That's a way to hook them. And if we're gone for a minute and a half, and then hopefully they had time to piss, but they come back. And then you just do a reset. Folks, during the commercial break, Basham has stayed in control, but damage of fighting valiantly. And then they had another nine minutes. So they got 18 bell to bell. And at that point, they were getting an every one minute cue. But I see I have my note here is I asked him, I said, how much time do you want for your go home cue? The go home cue, as I said earlier, that's when, when you hear go home, you start whatever sequence that you're going to go through to go into your finish. And you better have that one. That's the most important timing. They said, give us four and a half minutes. Okay, boys, you got it. And that's a, that's a, uh, I guess that's not as impressive sounding when nobody knows what the fuck, the reason why that's impressive is. But if you want a four and a half minute cue, that means you've got a lot of shit to do and you you need to nail it, right? And they did. And damage a one with his finish off the top turnbuckle, the chokes hanging choke slam double thing, sit down. Boom, one, two, three. And the place blew. And the referees unlock the heels. And the fans are standing and cheering. And that's when I say, because I've saved five minutes left on the air. One minute for our break and four minutes for the final segment. So I can say, folks, we're going to get a word with the winner. 
the new OVW champion, just a, in one minute, stay with us. And we go to the spots, and we come back. Damage and the baby faces are at the desk. And, of course, he vows that the damage and OVW will never die. Of course, he was leaving, too, but evil had to be vanquished. And I didn't want to fucking trap myself into not being able to bring Dano back because he was a hot baby face for us. So he just kind of faded a few weeks later for the fans' you know, uh, knowledge. But they do the interview at the desk, and then we send send it up to the ring with Dean Hill to interview the loser, the former champion. And there Basham admits he got beat, he lost. It was a valiant fight. He meant everything about the revolution, but now it's over. The revolution is over. And then Conway says, no, it's not. What the fuck are you talking about? It's over, Rob. We lost. You Fuck you lost. I didn't lose. And then the rest of his people jump on Basham and kick the shit out of him. And as they're kicking the shit out of him, who else is going to help him? He's got no, he's been a heel. He's got no friends in the babyface locker room. The rest of the heels are feeding on him. Here comes the damager. And he clears the ring of the fucking heels because they had at one time been the closest of friends. And people think now, oh, now they're going to hug. Brian, guess what they did? They hugged. No, they didn't. Oh, they fought off. No, they didn't. <laughs> damager ran the heels off and went over and fucking reached out and fucking pulled Doug to his feet and then looked at him and turned around and walked off. It's like, I've got respect for you, but you still ain't my fucking best friend anymore. And right then, as we bring up Basham's music so that now he's alone in the ring and the people can now, because they've got the official permission to, because he's a baby face, the heels just turned on him, now the people stand up and give Basham the standing ovation as his music plays. But wait, there's more. Because we timed it. We didn't time it. The guy that was timing it was Danny Davis. And I told Danny, I said, with 30 seconds left, be rolling in. And as soon as Danny comes through the door and the people see him, they're already cheering. Now they blow and the babies go because Danny rolls in. And the last 30 seconds of this television program is the reunion of the uncle and the nephew that started OVW on the nephew's last night as he's just been driven out and they hug and Danny raises his arm, Doug's arm, and off we go. It's not that fucking difficult. You you can you don't have to go to break every time the goddamn match starts a minute later. You don't have to put a hat on a hat and gimmick everything up where just because it's no disqualification. I think the worst thing they did was one guy hit the other guy with a garbage can when they spilled out on the floor, and I think a, a few times somebody went for a pile driver or whatever the fuck. But they didn't need to do hardcore because the issue was set up. The people couldn't got any hotter. And then when you build something 
and present it, you need to make sure that the people understand the history behind it, why it's important, what the stakes are, what the stipulations are, what both guys' opinion or viewpoint is on the match, and then have the fucking match and give the match the most prominent position. It's not that hard. Who taught you how to do formats? Where did you learn how to do formats? And how eye-opening was it from when you went from Memphis to Mid-South to see how things were done? <laughs> well, I've, I've told you, I started actually doing formats, not from scratch, but writing them, transcribing them. When Teeny used to have me keep track of if the Louisville station was playing their interviews correctly and giving them all their time. Because, I mean, Nick sometimes used to send tapes in those days that sometimes the station would just cut off like eight minutes at the end. I don't know if it's because the tape was unusable or they were fucking around. But anyway, so I would transcribe the stuff, and I got used to being at timing and seeing where breaks were and how long segments were. And then, obviously, Memphis TV was the first time I saw segments, and it was, or formats, and I've said even, you know, they didn't put anything on paper in those days that if you found it could be in any way incriminating. So it was literally desk, interview so-and-so, ring, match so-and-so versus so-and-so, and they'd have the time on it. And, you know, whatever. There was no details. But it was all laid out verbally. And you just had to retain it and know what people were talking about. And then going to you know, Mid-South, where it wasn't that the formats were more complicated in writing because there still wasn't a lot of shit written down that could be found and used against the business, but it was now we're taping two shows in one night. And we've talked about Mid-South Wrestling. There was the bicycle of tapes around the territory because they had so many regular towns they ran every two weeks that they had to stagger the television program. If we shot it, on May 1st, it would air the following weekend in three or four of the markets, and the following weekend after that in three or four more, and, and it'd take five weeks to get all the way around the horn. So we had to keep up with what number program had aired most recently in that market so we wouldn't do anything or say anything that hadn't aired on television yet, even if it had been shot. And in the pre-internet days, not a soul knew what the fuck had happened in Shreveport at the Boys Club. So that was where I started learning how to not only keep track of the formats, but pay particular attention to how, you know, things were timed and everything. And then, you know, with, with the WCW creative team, especially with, with Clash of Champions, we're live. So even though it was loose, it was looser than this because... It was two and a half hours. That's the first live program that I ever formatted. You know, and and obviously I was getting input on, Rick, how long do you want for your match? I'll put it on paper and whatever. But then I had to put all the bells and whistles in the middle of it, figure out where the interviews would go or how long they might take. And in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, I got to where I, that's the only math that I can do in my head flawlessly is counting time. Now I can do it on the fly. And so, so much time spent in the truck and TNA and Ring of Honor and having to, you know, when the 
producer says, I said, well, what was the time on seg four? Eight minutes, 42 seconds. Okay, we're 42 seconds heavy. Before we come back up, I got to figure out where the rest of the program, we can cut 42 seconds. Uh, take 15 off the goddamn entrance. We'll pick it up halfway down the aisle and give them their cue in the match 30 seconds early. See what happens. Boom. Shit like that. Does any of that make any sense? I think it makes sense. Again, that was a big show. I'd like to hear one of these days you should do just an average show where there wasn't. I don't know, do a, average shows, kid. Oh, you know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> Instead of a multiple year story culminating on a big show. A show more than. Well, I, I grabbed that one because that was an important match. And and I will do and I'll do another one next week if you want or whenever. But especially when they have an important match, it just drives me crazy when they've got to this point and they they think it's that's like starting the seventh game of the World Series and deciding halfway through the first inning, oh, we got to sell some fucking feminine hygiene products. I'd like to hear you do one from the early days of Smoky Mountain when you were trying to establish everything: who the wrestlers were, who the stars were, the promotion, the towns. Maybe next time you could do one of those. Well, send me some notes on what you wanna you wanna hear, and I'll I'll tell you what you wanna hear. <laughs> okay. Who's gonna tell you what you wanna hear? Well, I'll tell you what. Sometimes you just need somebody to talk to. And to be honest with you, after writing, what was it, three hundred? No, I think it was three hundred and ten OVW television programs, weekly programs in a row. I wish I'd known about BetterHelp, but they weren't our sponsor then. Like they're they're our sponsor now. They sponsor this program and so many of our other shows, but they weren't my sponsor back then. They would have given different meaning to the word being my sponsor at that point if I'd had better help. But folks, if you're pulling your hair out of your head because you're writing a live-to-tape, low-budget television program for a local wrestling school or any other reason, our friends at BetterHelp can help you out. Because as we've mentioned so many times before, we've heard it from so many of the listeners in the cult of Cornette, especially during the pandemic, they didn't have as much communication with other people as they wanted they needed somebody to talk to to learn something about themselves or how they're dealing with things or how their life is changing and get some feedback it's self-awareness which i understand well sometimes they even have coaches for that kind of thing now from what i've been told brian where you're coached to be more self-aware well therapy does that and you wouldn't even have to drive to the coach you can do it right online with better help until you talk through things, you do not know what you want or why you react the way that you do. And BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on the journey of self-discovery, which is cheaper than ever now. The gas prices are going down, but self-discovery uses less uh, miles per gallon than regular driving. Were you aware of that? Sorry, my Brian, mouse. are you on mute? My mouse stopped working. <laughs> I uh, I don't know what I'm aware of. I don't even know what you're talking about, but my mouse is back. It's working. Your again. mouse is back. Well, if your mouse needs somebody to talk to also, the journey of self-discovery is what we were talking about there. And, and you know, I've often heard when I was a child, journeys of self-discovery would make you go blind, but that turned out to be just an old wives' tale. But folks, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient flexible and suited to your schedule 
you go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, and fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. It's more affordable and more convenient than standard in-person therapy. So you can discover your potential now. Go to BetterHelp.com slash J-C-E and get 10% off your first month's services. BetterHelp.com slash J-C-E. 10% off your first month's services. And tell them that Jim Cornette and his OVW television PTSD sent you. Well, and sticking with a theme of developmental programs and low-budget operations. Um, So AEW is now doing house shows, and as we have learned, they did one, what was this, last night as we're speaking right now? It is. It was last night. It was was last night. May 12th. In my mother's birthplace, Corbin, Kentucky, at the big new building they've got down there, and I don't know, honestly, how Corbin got this building it must have been some kind of political thing or somebody they had money left over in the budget for the county or i i don't know what the fuck happened but there's a an arena in corbin kentucky that seats five thousand people and for the benefit of those of you non-united states residents who've never heard of corbin kentucky and for the benefit of the 98.5 or 9% of American residents who've never been to Corbin, Kentucky, the population of Corbin in my road atlas, that is, I guess this would be the 2010 census because my atlas almost 15 years old. The population of Corbin is 7,900 people, Brian. But they've got, they're on the interstate. They're right on I-75. But I'm, and I'm not downgrading The people of Corbin, it is my mother's... Actually, she wasn't even born in Corbin. That was the nearest town. She was born, I think, about 20 miles due west in Duck Run, Kentucky, but that wasn't, like, really an official place. And, of course, that was 90 years ago this October, so now Corbin is a teeming metropolis. But most people have only heard of it because that was the first Colonel Sanders restaurant. Otherwise... I don't know how Corbin got a 5,000-seat building. But anyway, AEW ran it, and they're running house shows. But my question to you before we went on the air and what we're going to talk about here is, are they running developmental shows, or are they trying to run house shows? And And I believe they should run developmental shows. I think a lot of their younger talent does need work in front of you know, an audience and repetition like that. So I think they should run developmental shows or, you know, since their, their crowds, their devoted fan base, you know, enjoys spending money on AEW. I don't blame them if they didn't run some bigger events, house shows in bigger cities that even if they're not doing television, because they probably sell some tickets. So you're not against either concept. House shows I'm, or developmental shows. I'm not against either concept, but I'm wondering, are they trying to do both at the same time? That's when I see the card and I see the buildings, it doesn't all add up, much less the places. I mean, 
Corbin, I think the WWE actually ran that building in Corbin a while back. And they, I'm sure they sold out. It's like the Rolling Stones coming to town for fuck's sake in Corbin. But are they, how can you run a 5,000 seat building in a town that only has 8,000 people in it and not put any of your biggest stars on the card except for FTR and a couple of people that I think were on the card to lead other people. So we'll, 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 we'll talk about it, but the, uh, we got an email uh, from somebody that was there, uh, Ryan from Taswell, Tennessee. I've been to Taswell. That, I went to a spot show there at the 1978 WFIA convention in Knoxville. And we've also seen pictures of the crowd on Twitter. And we've also got the seating map uh, from the ticketing people. Was that Ticketmaster or what ticket agency was that? Oh, I am not certain, actually. <clears throat> but it was, it was a, tic- a seating map that they put out. And the point is that nobody agrees on exactly how many people were there. The pictures looked like five, six hundred. The eyewitness testimony from Ryan and Taswell, which we'll get to in a second, says, well, maybe a thousand, twelve hundred. The ticketing service said there were eighteen hundred tickets distributed, but that's not paid attendance. That's how many were out. And I have a feeling to, to someone who doesn't understand the difference there. What does that mean? That means when you say that that's any, how many are out. Any comp tickets that you gave out for advertising or for sponsors or for to try to get people in the building. Um, that doesn't that's tickets distributed is not tickets paid for. But we know from not only pictures, but from an eyewitness account that even if there were 1800 tickets distributed, there weren't that many people in the building. And if you have, if you're giving away tickets, a lot of times that's because people are not motivated to see your show to begin with. Unless you're doing legitimate trades for advertising, whatever. But if you've given away hundreds of tickets to a show that draws a thousand people, you were trying to get people in the building. How many tickets would you normally set aside for something like local radio to promote the event? Well, again, here in New York City, if you'd even get anybody to talk to you, you'd have to go in and say, look, I'll give you 200 tickets to this show at the Garden. Give me, you know, 10 spots at $5,000 each or whatever the fuck. But this is Corbin, Kentucky. There's a couple of radio stations for 12 tickets, six pairs. They do on-air giveaways all day long. There's a, 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 a low-power television station, or at least there used to be because OVW was on it, Channel 9 down in London, Kentucky, which is about 30 miles up the road. And that guy, for four tickets for him and his family and say, come down, bring your camera and shoot some interviews, he'll play shit all day long. It, it, it there... Corbin is a town you could legitimately get a hundred posters, a thousand flyers, go to the gas stations and the fast food places on the interstate and fucking have some radio spots. And within two or three days, everybody in town is going to know that there's a wrestling match at the fucking arena, whether they're going to want to go is different, but they're going to know about it. So there's no way that hundreds of tickets were 
given out for advertising. And you know where you know where Corbin is, don't you? I'll tell you now why you know where Corbin is. Do you know what's 25 miles to the southeast of Corbin, Kentucky? I don't. Barberville. Oh, boy. Oh. You've been there. I have twice. Okay. Barberville is half the size of Corbin. Barberville, the population is 4,000 people, and Corbin, it's 8,000. And you've been to Barberville. So how hard would it be to get out the word that national television wrestling is coming to this town? No, the word got out that a bus of Yankees was leaving town and the entire town lined the streets to watch us and the wrestlers leave town. Word got around quick. Yeah. Real quick. It's like a kid on a bicycle can pretty much spread the fucking news. And that's, again, Smoky Mountain Wrestling ran Barberville, Kentucky at the Knox Central High School once a month, regularly. Our sponsor, uh, Dennis Chestnut, who was uh, on, he was the town gadabout, and he, on behalf of the Knox Central Booster Club that raised money for the high school athletic teams and et cetera. And we would do once a month between 500 and eight or 900 for the bigger events. We had the Steiners there. I think we did about 1,000 people. Between 500 and 1,000 people once a month, 25 miles from Corbin. But you know what our expense was? <laughs> you know why? Knox Central High School had a fucking gym that seated 2,000 people. And we got it for free because they were the sponsors. We gave them their percentage of the gate. For 25% of whatever we drew, we got the building for free. We got the ticket, the advanced ticket locations. We got all the local advertising. We got the staff of the building to do whatever the fuck. That was all included. So we had no risk. If we drew $1,000, we got the whole thing for 250 bucks. And in London, Kentucky, OVW ran quite regularly their developmental shows. But instead of a 5,000-seat arena, we would draw four or 500 people. In, uh, right up the road from Corbin in London is their, I can't remember what the name of the building is, but they have like an, it's kind of a convention center thing, but it's an exhibition hall building. It's not an arena, but they have, you know, lower scale comic conventions and, you know, local events there. And you put a ring and you put the chairs in and I guarantee goddamn you that you could rent the fucking thing. If they just wanted to come in and, and rent the thing and do everything themselves, they could rent it for less than a thousand dollars. It's London, Kentucky. But we, again, we had a sponsor where we didn't even rent the building to begin with. And we drew approximately the same number of people that I saw in the pictures of the AEW show and half as many as what this eyewitness testimony says they had there. No plane tickets, no guaranteed money up front. Because you can't expect to fly people let me give you the card. Can I give him the card? Are you, are are you, you there? Are you asking yes. me? Yes, I'm asking you. Let me give the people the card for the house show oh, the in car. Corbin, Kentucky, the AEW ramp. I heard, the car. I heard no, you the can't car. Have people fly there. Let me give them the car. Let me give them the no. car. That's why I didn't know what the hell you were talking about. No, no, no. Let me give them the card. An FTW title match, Hook versus Ethan Page. 
The Boys Without Dalton Castle versus Christopher Daniels and Sean Spears. Tony Storm versus Billy Starks. Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy versus Lee Moriarty and Big Bill. Powerhouse Hobbs versus Pat Buck. Claudio Castagnoli versus Brian Pillman Jr. And for the AEW tag team title, FTR versus the Gun Boys. So let me let me go down and explain this card. Hook and Ethan Page, I don't know. Apparently they think Ethan Page might be a leader, but there's no leader there. Christopher Daniels is probably there because he's involved in the office and I don't know why they put him against the boys because I would have thought that maybe you'd had, well, they put Hobbs in that position with Pat Buck, but Christopher Daniels against anybody in a single match probably been more productive. Tony Storm against Billy Starks. Billy Starks is a teenage kid here in Louisville, so at least she drove. But again, here's the problem. I have Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy versus Lee Moriarty and Big Bill. What? Nobody's going to learn anything here. Is Darby going to learn anything from Lee Moriarty and Big Bill? Are Big Bill and Lee Moriarty going to really learn from Darby? He's still green. And they're in there with the, the mascot. Hobbs versus Pat Buck can be explained because Pat Buck is doing some on-the-job training for powerhouse Hobbs. I hope that match went 10 or 12 minutes and Hobbs learned how to work on the fly and they called nothing ahead of time before they got in the ring. And, you know, and then Claudio, same thing with Brian Pillman Jr. But they have one somewhat legitimate match, FTR and Guns. So, yes, I agree. All these talents and so many more are green and need small shows in front of an audience to get experience. But why put this card in a 5,000-seat building when you could have had the same card and the same crowd in two different places, 15 miles, 20 miles on either side of this town and spent probably a quarter or a fifth or less of the money. There was no chance that the, the building with seats 5,000 was set up for 3,500 and there was no chance that was going to happen. But then again, now I see that they're, they're now going to be running more house shows. But in, in places like Tupelo and Huntsville, Alabama, but are they going to, again, be just developmental shows with none of the stars, in which case, why are they really advertising it nationally and going to these bigger buildings, even in smaller towns? Or are they? was this just practice and they're actually going to put real cards in some of these towns in these bigger buildings because you don't, you know what you learn when you're in a 5,000 seat building and you're green and you're working in front of 800 people, you learn how to be fucking nervous and goddamn depressed because it's not a great atmosphere. Brian, any so, questions before I talk about some of the first-hand comments from Ryan and Taswell? So your biggest issue isn't necessarily the overall card. It's that it's this card and this building. What are they doing? They're not. This is neither fish nor fowl. If you had somebody go out and say, I'm going to book sponsored spot shows in high school gyms 
in the Southeast or the Midwest or wherever. Southeast is easier because it's got a long tradition of doing wrestling shows that way. And then you get these guys and girls out in front of five or six or 800 people or maybe 1,000 people if you get a good little sponsor group locally in a less lower-pressure environment and you're not spending a fortune to give these guys experience on a wrestling show. It doesn't need to be that way. Or if you want to book 5,000-seat buildings, put them in markets that you can put a fucking card in and sell the tickets and look like a fucking successful company. But then that requires you to work all your big, highly paid names instead of all the green guys that need work, but not in 5,000-seat buildings with crowds that look like a piss hole in a snowbank. And this had to bleed money. Just plane tickets alone. Where, did they fly to Louisville? Did they fly to Knoxville? Because there's no airport within... I mean, now, I know some mail planes and crop dusters may be able to land closer, but there's no airport within 75 miles either direction of Corbin. They're running Salem, Virginia tonight. How Jesus far Christ! How far <laughs> is that from Corbin? Well, it depends on whether they decide to rib any of the green guys like we did Candido and Tammy and tell them to make sure they went the short way. <laughs> hold on here. Let me look at that. And, and just well, so you no. know, the house show tonight, Salem, Virginia, at the Salem Civic Center, the setup is for 3,698 people. Well, they ain't going to have to worry about turning any away. There are 2,076 tickets distributed. And they, they still, they ain't going to have to worry about all them showing up. I, if I was the concession stand, I wouldn't fucking stock in too much popcorn. So Salem is right next to Roanoke, which, so basically what they're going to have to do, they'll get on the interstate and stay there. They better stay, take the interstate, but they will have to, they'll have to go from Corbin down to Knoxville and then cut up. And that's, that's 220 miles. No, that's to Stanton. 140, 100, that's 300 mile drive for them. I mean, it's interstate, so that's nothing out of the ordinary, but goddamn, that's, that's like routing Pixley to Bug Tussle. Where did they, if you said, I'm running a multi million dollar company, I can run wrestling shows anywhere in the country, I'm going to pick Corbin and Salem. Well, again, they brought in Jeff Jarrett. They said they were going to try to build up the house show program. Let me ask you this to try to look on the bright side of all this. If you are one of the younger wrestlers, and it's weird to expect people to pay to go see really a one-match show, because although the guns are young and they could use this experience as much as anyone, they're the former tag team champions. It's a rematch of the yeah. tag titles, but it's a one-match show. And I'm sure FTR tore it down because they worked a ton of house shows for WWE and NXT. They know what to do. Yeah. But for the younger wrestlers who work on that show, again, Pat Buck, Christopher Daniels, both agents in the company, if they are driving the next day to Salem, Virginia, is this, in a sense, what you would almost want? The idea that you could have some of these wrestlers working in front of a non-televised crowd, maybe the room's too big for you, but a non-televised crowd, and they could talk about what they're doing on the road on the way to the next match. <laughs> You'd have to put... One mind in each car, elsewise it's a blind leading the blind. But no, I'm not, again, I'm not crying for them because they have to spend six hours to car or whatever, but it's just that 
from a promoter standpoint, this was never designed to make any money whatsoever. And I know people say, well, Tony's got plenty of money to spend, but why not Why not make it more palatable and, and at least break even or not spend thousands of dollars to run a show on purpose? This was, could never have possibly, nobody could have believed this would ever make the money back. All right, anyway, here's a couple of notes from it. Um, how, much do you, how much do you think it would cost to rent the house there in Corbin, Kentucky? Jeez, well, I mean, it's a 5,000-seat building, but it's also Corbin. But, I mean, I, I would think still rent and just staffing for anything, we're talking about a few thousand dollars, as, as opposed to a high school gym that would have fit the crowd just fine for potentially nothing or for a cut of whatever. Um. But you could see a major promotion not wanting to run high school gyms, right? Why? It's beautiful. This is Kentucky. <laughs> Fucking basketball. It's. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I've been in arenas that are not as nice as many of the high school gyms around Kentucky and southern Indiana. Of course, there are some stinkers, too. But if you get a good one, and everybody knows where it is, and they don't have to pay to park. Anyway, here are a few of Ryan's comments. He had previously been there to a concert. That night, there were police and attendants directing parking. Tonight, parking was no problem. I realized as we made our way inside, we didn't have to worry about being crowded. Uh, instead of the close to 5,000 capacity, seats blocked for the entranceway, probably around 3,500 available. The attendance was probably close to 1,000 or 1,200. As I said, I saw pictures less than that. 1,800 were distributed. There's, there's no way there were 1,800 people in that building. And that's distributed tickets. They probably panicked when they heard the late advance. Anyway, I already gave you the card. Observations. Except for the main event, the matches spent a few minutes on the floor. They should have some type of lighted platform so everyone could see the action as it unfolds, like a ring. They still can't stay in the ring. And here, here's another thing that... I especially used to go out of my mind with Ring of Honor guys and with the, just the indies in general. In an arena, it's one thing. When you have an arena set up and the stands and people are looking down on the ring except for the, the floor seats, right? There's a little bit better line of sight. But in all the indie shows, the Ring of Honor guys used to do this. It's an indie mindset. They have to fight outside on the floor. The problem is they're running flat buildings. And uh, anybody that's ever been to an indie wrestling show where they're running a flat building with seats on the floor, they go outside, they're at, at ringside fighting and just killing each other for five minutes, but the guy in row 12 on the other side of the ring can't see Dick. And he's standing on his chair and he's like, well, I hear the stuff rattling around. It... it, it and so they solved that problem by going around on all four sides of the ring. So then three sides of the ring can't fucking see shit for most of the time. And it's just, you don't need it. It's fucking stupid. Um, Tony Khan came out at the close of intermission and ringside broke into a Tony chant. You could tell he was eating it up. He announced this was his first time in Corbin, Kentucky, and thanked everyone for coming. I'm it was surprised. also, coincidentally enough, his last time in Corbin, Kentucky. Well, I'm surprised a man of the world like that has never been through Corbin. 
Um, Hobbs is a huge man. Working with Pat Buck tonight was a smart call to get some on-the-job training, is Ryan's comment. Uh, FTR were the most over, followed by Darby. Even children were chanting FTR. They cut a promo to close the show, telling us how much they love wrestling and want there to be a place where fans can see that. We'd love to be, for there to be a place where we could see FTR. Eh, blah, 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 blah. Advertisement had Britt Baker front and center, no Britt. Event staff began sweeping and cleaning during the main event. Well, that always <laughs> happens during a hot main event in a big crowd. It was an angle. They work for Kenny Omega. He's the cleaner. Ah, that, well, they could have used him, apparently, because they wanted to get a head start. So, and let, let, let me say one other thing we'll move along is... The ticket prices, I understand, for this show started at 20 bucks. general admission, $20. That's great for Corbin. Cause our tickets uh, were $10 30 years ago in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. It's that same thing as $20 now. $20 general admission for all these kind of shows. Get people in the door. That's what I tried to tell Greg the Office Boy in Ring of Honor. Remember when he set $65 ringside for Charleston, West Virginia? That's most people's fucking monthly rent. But you brought up they were going to try to expand the house shows, and they brought Jeff Jarrett to try to potentially expand. He's done a ton of promotion and knows a lot of buildings, but when you book a building, you don't have the card. I'm wondering, did they tell him, hey, we're going to do developmental shows, or did he say, hey, you want to do house shows? Well, here, if we go to Tupelo, if we go to Huntsville, if we even to Corbin, with our TV and our stars, we can draw 2,500, 3,000 people in these markets, small buildings. That might be a fucking profit maker. But then, so, but then I see that tickets in some of these other towns are starting way ahead of that price. Does that mean they're going to beef up the cards? Or The point is, they need to decide what they want to do with this. If they want to have guys get experience in front of people, they should do low-cost shows in smaller buildings where they get a sweetheart deal and in small markets where people will be more inclined to watch and like and react to live wrestling and they're not jaded and jaded and confused or whatever. If they want to run house shows where they actually make a business out of it and draw enough people to make a profit on the event or sell a lot of merchandise, then they've got to give the people the stars that they see on television. If you were in Huntsville, Alabama, would you pay $40 to see that card I just rattled off or more? Or, you know, that's a... $20 that's a, is fair. Twenty. It's a $20 general admission. Hey, everybody come in and see what we've got to offer here. We want people in the place. Instead of going out and giving the tickets away for free because you didn't make the card attractive and you priced the floor seats too high or whatever. I don't know but they got to decide which genre they're going to do this. I'm not saying they're not selling tickets for their TV tapings, and we know they're selling tickets at Wembley, but you can't sell tickets for Powerhouse Hobbs versus Pat Buck, even though that's probably the best thing for Powerhouse Hobbs to be doing these days is working with Pat Buck. That's my point. Well, for instance, Jim, tonight, as we are recording Salem, Virginia, Salem Civic Center, tickets range from $20 to $80. Jesus! All ringside is gone. Uh, why should, why, when I say all ringside, the first five rows or four rows around the ring are gone. 
There's okay, a few no, floor, normally, a few seats. Oh, go ahead. No, normally, uh, there's 20 seats in a ringside row, unless you're just trying to jam them in on the floor or do a big setup. 20 seats per row, eight, or for, per row per side, so 80 seats per row. So there's 400 people on the floor. That's great, but at $80, are they going to be happy when they see that their semifinal is fucking, you know, Dipshit Jones versus Bug Tussle McGee. I think they will. I, you know what? I, <laughs> no, I mean, again, they're not selling out. This isn't Wembley we're talking about. These are just spot shows, seemingly. I mean, that's the way they're treating them. House shows, spot shows, whatever you want to say. They're really more like spot shows. I mean, I forgot what the question was. Well, the, the question was, when do they price it to the point where the people that bought a ticket for an AEW house show oh, for $80 plus gas, plus parking, plus a friend to go with them, plus fucking popcorn. If you go into it knowing that you're not going to get the Young Bucks Omega, Moxley worked that other house show, but obviously not here. You're not going to get, you know, more than likely a CM Punk or an MJF. Well, we can't even get CM Punk on TV, but, but did they know that when they put the tickets on sale? Did they announce the card when they put the tickets on sale? Or did the initial rush... Go, oh, shit, AEW's coming. And then they got the tickets, and then they, oh, only part of AEW's coming. If these are the cards they're doing and these are the towns they're running, like you said, there's a future show in Tupelo, there's Huntsville, Alabama, there's Salem, Virginia tonight. Is it worth giving any TV time at all to maybe a little bit more of a mention or a conversation that, hey, this person's coming to this town, have them say something? Or is it not worth it? Well... <laughs> It's always worth it to promote something you're doing, but you're designing something that's almost unpromotable. Because, for example, when, when Dusty, for example, would promote a match on TBS that was taking place in a specific town that wasn't going to be presented anywhere else. Normally, you know, like the Best of Seven series, you knew it was happening, but they didn't want to try to call attention to it was going to be the Road Warriors versus the Midnight Express in every town that week, right? So we would talk generically, but we'd mention a town if, if, if there was something that was only going to happen there, and it was the, something that would appeal to the people in that town, and it gave us something else to talk about on television, whether it be the Mulkies in Anderson, South Carolina, their hometown that sold out and turned them away, or Misty Blue in Baltimore because Dusty was tickled by it or whatever. But you can't... You, what is Powerhouse Hobbs going to say? Boy, when I get a hold of Pat Buck in Salem... You know, you can say, we're all coming, we're coming, we're coming. Then a lot of people ain't coming. Sort of like fucking Uncle Dave's sex life. So, you know, you want to do the on tour and mention the dates. It's part of the company. But past, like you said, FTR and the guns in a rematch, there was nothing to promote or talk about. It was just names wrestling each other. Well, for the record, here's who's on the house show tonight. We'll finish up the house show conversation with this. House Rules Tour, Salem, Virginia, May 13th, 7 p.m. bell time. Matches announced. Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy versus Powerhouse Hobbs and QT Marshall. Tony Storm versus Sky Blue. Wardlow, with Arn Anderson at least in this photo, versus Lee Moriarty. And finally, Big Bill versus Virginia's own Hangman Page. And that's it? That's all that's been announced so far. Jeff Jarrett's uh, images in the post, well, 
Moxley, Jarrett, Claudio, Britt, Hook are in the poster. None of them. Well, a lot of those people were in Corbin, but uh, some of those people were not in Corbin that's on that. I can understand Paige, he lives up there. But uh, did they, are they keeping people on the road and just flying them around or taking them around to, I don't know. All right. Anyway, we'll we'll monitor this house show situation and see if they ever decide exactly what they're going for here with these things. You think they're going to come to Louisville? I don't care. <laughs> I it, is I, there a we, building they could run for a house show like this? Yes. Um. Well, number one. There's a place right down south of town. It's a little convention center, the Paraquat Springs Convention Center. And I promoted a TNA house show there uh, in, what was it, 2000, probably eight, maybe, maybe early nine, because we they came to the gardens, TNA did. I promoted that. That was there in 2007, I'm pretty sure it was. That was their biggest house show to that point in time. They ran the gardens, but the, that was when the gardens was taking events, but you had to staff it. You had to put the toilet paper in the bathroom, everything. So the next time they came back, we went to this convention center. Again, had an independent show, did about a thousand people. It'd be perfect for something like that. Obviously, you know, in, in Louisville, they wouldn't want to, unless they were going to do television, they wouldn't want to go to any of the big buildings. You can't get into the gardens, but there's still a few places on the periphery. There's a new place in the West End that Dave Marquez is doing Derby City Wrestling now that uh, is an offshoot of his championship wrestling from Hollywood program. And they taped there. They just taped, I think, last month once. But, you know, you're looking for... Louisville wouldn't be the best market because... OVW's been here, and if anybody's seen OVW lately, Jesus Christ, you wouldn't want to see any more wrestling. But it's not anything new, and it's also, it's a bigger city that you would have to spend money to advertise unless you had regular ongoing television. They want to hit the smaller markets if they're going to do developmental shows where you can get the word out, get advertising easier and less expensively, and, you know, get people that are, more accessible, more accepting of wrestling because they don't see it all the time. That's why I thought they were out of their minds when they put Florida Championship Wrestling in Florida because the last thing people in Florida needed was more fucking either bad wrestling, outlaw wrestling, indie wrestling, or even free wrestling. TNA at Universal Studios had free wrestling them to death. So it, it, it depends on where you're going and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, what are we trying to accomplish? I don't know. This is your show. Oh, I forgot. It's been so long. Let's talk about the AEW television program. Can we do that real briefly? I don't uh, know about not. briefly, but we could definitely do uh, that. Well, this was the one for May the 10th. It was their pay-per-view quality program that we were promised, where they just they just crammed all the action they possibly could in. And so we were treated to a no holes barred anything goes girls match right before the no holes barred anything goes guys match uh okay at the start they 
they wanted to jam all the action they could in this thing. So this show started out with no entrances, no introductions. They opened up in the ring and they rang the bell for Claudio Castagnoli against Felix. And the 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 ADD assisted stipulation on this match was that the winner will get a shot at the other guy's championship. Claudio is the Ring of Honor World Champion, and Felix is one half of the Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions, and whoever wins, if Felix won, he'd get a shot at Claudio's title, and if Claudio won, he could pick a partner and get a shot at the tag team title. And my question to you, Brian, last is, why would either of them want that? I don't know. <laughs> There's no good reason. I don't know. There's no... Because if Claudio's the world champion, why does he want to be a world tag team champion? And honestly, if the tag team titles mean anything, if you're a world tag team champion, why do you want, you're already a world champion. Bobby Eaton got NWA world title shots at Ric Flair, but not while we were the world champions. It, 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 it well, was, uh, and it, plus this whole thing is uh, they're champions of another company that the hardcore fans know is all owned now by the same people. But for the average, again, if an, any, any average person tried to watch this program, they'd go, well, what's ring of honor. I thought this was AEW. what's going on here. What were you going to say? I was going to say part of the problem too, is whatever was going on there. Again, show long problem. It was really bad during the main event. You have a commentating team that can't explain anything. That just laugh at each other, telling jokes. Shivani just yells out superlatives whenever he can. That's part of the problem. You need loud more, noises. You need explanation on that show, and it has to be from someone who can communicate. It can't just be from someone talking like this, and then his little friend is just happy to be there. And then sometimes you forget Taz is even there. And then eventually he jumps in. I think Taz is trying mostly to stay under under the radar and not get any on him, but. Okay, so both guys are champions of another company going for a title match of another company against each other when they already have titles in another company. And Claudio is fantastic. And he made this better than most Felix matches, but he shouldn't be out there doing synchronized tumbling with a guy a foot shorter than him to begin with. And if every American didn't think that they were Mexican, then Felix's shit would stand out more because he does it better than most. But since you just see so much of the spinningness and acrobaticness, it just, it's all meaningless. But here's the thing with Claudio, he's so strong and he's such a good worker. I, I would make him the second heel to a real strong top heel. Because the only thing Claudio doesn't have is a strong promo. So put him in the main event mix. And I'm not talking about partners. I'm talking about the loose alliances like that the, the heels in Mid-Atlantic Wrestling used to have. When they would all come out for the show-closing interview and they all had their own belt or their own issue, but they were all main event fucking pricks that stuck together, right? And it, it make him the second heel to a real strong top heel. They're friends. They're not always partners. It puts him in the top mix, gives him credibility, have him get singles wins. Don't give him the big ball where promos are essential. But God, he could be such an asset to a roster. And he's, he's now the, he's the fucking third guy in his own group of flunkies. 
So anyway, I zoned down on a lot of this, but Claudio finally won with a power bomb. And as I, I made note, he's the Ring of Honor world champion, and he's presented as the number three guy in his own group. So there we go. Your thoughts? Eh, it was all right. I disagree with you about Claudio. I just think Claudio, I think people in the business like him a lot more than, I don't know, he's just, to me, he's, he's so bland. And you well, know, I can only see the giant swing so many times. And I'm sorry, unless you're Billy Robinson, the European uppercut sucks. It looks like shit. It looks like complete shit. Or Dory shit. Funk Jr. Eh, his sucked too after a while. Let's oh, be very come on. He got very slow and you could see him talking to the guy while he was doing it. It was almost like he gave up. It was like, I lost the NWA title. Now I'm just going to go through the motions for the next 50 <laughs> years. All right. I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, Claudio's, to me, I think he's okay. And a lot of it's just the way he's been booked since he left the Kings of Wrestling or since he got to the main roster and since he got to AEW. He is that second or third guy in the background. There's been nothing that's been done or that he's done to break away from that. And he wrestles fine matches. And that's what you want. You want a guy with that level of strength and that level of working ability to be in the periphery of a, a fucking top heel because he can do whatever. And sometimes he might drop a fall instead of your main guy. Or he might interfere, make the difference, or whatever. But nobody's presented Claudio with attention on him and trying to negate his weaknesses and put and put people around him to fucking bring the entertainment level up. Anyway, I, I, speaking of bringing the entertainment level up, Miro walked into Tony Khan's office on this television program. I popped. I absolutely popped. As soon as I saw his uh, cankles, I knew who it was. And I was like, oh, please, please. Yes, it's Miro. And then we never saw him again for the rest of the night. <laughs> I was about to say, he walked into Tony Khan's office, and that was it. He walked into and closed the door, and that was it. If you watch that reality show, you know that Tony's not in his office. He's sitting by the monitor. He's sitting in Gorilla. Well, then, I, I guess Miro was taking a shit in Tony's bathroom while he had the chance. Was Miro still in there when Thunder Rosa showed up? Was it like, I'm going to go confront to, oh, Miro, what are you doing here? Now, don't start any rumors. I'm not starting any rumors. I'm Miro's asking a, a happily married man. That was not even close to any rumor that I was starting. You're starting well, that rumor. You talk about Thunder Rosa going in there and closing the door behind her, and we don't know what was going on in there. What else am I supposed to believe you're insinuating, kind sir? Did she not, in fact, later on in the program, walk up to Tony Khan's door, walk in the room, and close the door? Well, did we see Miro did. leave? Did we see Miro leave the we room? We never saw Miro leave. Did we see Tony enter or leave? Next time, if, if we see Thunder Rosa, if she's walking bow-legged, we'll know something's up. See, no, that's not what we're saying, and that's not what we're going to know is up, and that's not what we're alluding to. We're alluding to the fact that people are arriving and showing up for the first time in a long time on AEW TV, and they're seemingly hanging out in Tony Khan's office. They certainly are, and if any of them come out bow-legged, well, Miro's been mad at God, so... Anyway, then they, they did packages on all four of the pillars. MJF and Darby and Jungle Jack and Sammy, our friend Sammy. And MJF's was first. And of course, he compared the pillars to the Beatles, and he ended up being Paul, uh, the most talented let me, let me, one. Yeah, let me stop you right there. I'm a big Beatles nut, and I love Paul McCartney, but what a great 
heat line that is. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, because he's the one with all the talent. Oh, yeah. what a great line. <laughs> uh, and 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 who brooding darby was george right or whatever but no uh jungle boy was george i think and darby was john lennon that's right darby was john lennon and that's actually it's sammy's ringo yeah there you go but anyway it was it, these packages especially this one good editing and good material and mjf went over the names the list of names that he's beaten cody rhodes and CM Punk. Well, that's the big blah, one. Blah, blah, blah. That yeah. may be the biggest mention of CM Punk since everything at all out. Well, and and also it was nice that he got a fucking fall over Cody that he could mention also because the position Cody's in now elsewhere. But again, th this was a good package. And then we started going into the Bizarro world booking again. Bizarro! FTR come out for an in-ring promo and they call out Mark Briscoe because they want to apologize to him because part of this, the unfolding of this program has been on their Friday show that nobody watches and whatever, but Jay Lethal is presented as a friend of Mark Briscoe's, even though FTR, like Mark, they're expected to put up with Jay, but Papa Briscoe don't trust Jeff and Sanjay and, blah, and all this shit. And they've done some comedy videos, which didn't help understanding this confusing situation anymore. But nevertheless, they call out Mark Briscoe to apologize. But Jeff and Zippy and Sanjay and Lethal come out. And Sanjay's the one doing the talking, the one that should never be near a microphone. Because it's so silly. And you've got Lethal, who's believable. you got Jeff, who's been, we've got Sanjay talking. And now, apparently, there's been a challenge at double or nothing for Lethal and Jarrett to face FTR, and Dax asked the fans if they should accept the challenge, and the fans said, no, we don't want to see that. Did you catch that? Yep. How many, you always hear the baby face, should I do it? They go, yes, it is, should, should we take the challenge? No. We don't want to see it. And whatever Dax called Jeff, they completely bleeped that out. And then FTR said that they would agree to wrestle these guys if they admit to using Mark Briscoe. And before anybody could do anything, Mark came out and got a big pop. Even though he's never on TV and they've dropped the ball again with something that was handed to them on a silver platter. And... He announces the most popular fucking guy right now in the ring, Mark Briscoe. People would do anything for him. He announces that at the double or nothing tag match, he'll be the referee. So, so they're making Mark Briscoe a referee in a... I said FTR ought to wrestle Jeff and Lethal because at least it'll be a good tag team match. I don't know if it's going to draw any money, but at least it won't be insulting. But Mark Briscoe now, in an attempt for Tony Khan to, in his mind, reconcile this and make somehow, it, to him, make this interesting, rather than just having FTR, who have been damaged in the booking, have just signed a new contract, the, pro the probably the best tag team match they could have in the company right now, would be with Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett, unless 
If Mike Bennett and Matt Taven are still around, they said they signed them. We've never seen them again. Let FTR have a good match and win. Don't, it doesn't need all this goddamn gaga around it. Now you get Mark Briscoe being a fucking rat. I bet they switch Mark Heel. Watch and see. The only possible way that they could fuck this up anymore is if they try to make him a fucking heel and side with Jay. And then Mark gives them all a bottle of booze and cups to toast. And Sanjay takes a big drink and spits right in fucking Dax's face. And they attack the heels or they attack the baby faces. And Mark is trying to separate everybody and is left standing there like a dipshit. And then he gets shoved and falls into a blind pile driver by Dax who can't see because of the booze in his eyes. But when, when he grabs the guy, he can give him a perfect pile driver. So help me. I don't know how I can help you. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Is someone supposed to pretend that any of this is good? Because it's not. You know, FTR have had spectacular matches. Last year was their year. But the angles have always been missing. And this was, I mean, childish isn't even the word. The whole idea, you know, we're going to prove that you're using Mark Briscoe. This whole thing has been poorly laid out. Nobody wants to see Sanjay, except Tony and Sanjay. It's co coincidentally enough, QT and Sanjay can't get off this show, and both of them, according to the Observer, are Tony's right-hand guys in that company. Whatever no, that no, no, wait a minute. Only one of them could be the right hand. The other one's the left hand, but Tony's ambidextrous, so they get the same amount of fucking conditioner. FTR are now in another feud that's not serious, that no one could take serious. Whatever benefits you want to say there are to Jeff Jarrett, using them like this aren't any of them. Jay Lethal's an afterthought. The Giant is an afterthought. <laughs> Mark Briscoe could have been doing so much more. They're completely not using him correctly. And FTR, I mean, I just think they're losing ground. There has to be, you say only Taven and Bennett put together another tag team. There has to be something else. It's almost like they decided, let's book something that Jim Cornette will like. Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal versus FTR. What else would Jim Cornette love more than this? And then let's just fill it with the worst <laughs> actual week-to-week -week booking and see if we can get him to not like any of this. <sighs> but this is bad. I mean, is there anything good about any of this? No. It's, it's just all over the place. And it... <sighs> You, they didn't know Sanjay was going to spit the liquor in his face? I just, ugh. This is like, well, it, it, just, it makes Mark look like an idiot because he not only is humoring these people, but also that he's the one that brought the stuff in for the heels to fucking sabotage FTR with. It doesn't create intrigue on whose side is the referee going to be on. It, it makes people go, well, that fucking Mark Briscoe, he's, he's an idiot too. Now, this is horrible. No one wants to see FTR against these guys anymore. They just want to see them do something interesting, and this is not it. Not at all. Hopefully, the next segment will be more interesting. Oh, wait. It's in the back. Chris Jericho mouthing off to Renee Moxley Good. And I was hoping that she wouldn't mentally assault him. I've, you know, he's had a bad week. Have we determined what he meant? Uh, for those of you new to the show... Uh, previously on the drive-thru, we talked about Chris Jericho alleging that someone at the Mandalay Bay physically and mentally assaulted him. 
What well, is not the, even not even someone, but the staff, the, staff. the FLA base staff that the, the, he couldn't get his car or his bags on time. And they physically and mentally assaulted him and then laughed in his face is what he said. But the question goes to what is the mental assault? Is it could that be as simple as staring at him and not saying anything? They're using maybe, their mental ability. Like, what is the mental assault? Or maybe it could be that they fucking made him watch one of his recent matches. And it was just more than he could handle. So the story here is that since Adam Cole attacked him last week and tackled him off the announce platform, and Adam Cole's crazy now, he's scared of Adam Cole, so Chris Jericho got a court order that if he's in a place, if he's in an arena, if he's wherever, Adam Cole is not allowed inside the building. And by the way, I want to know what, courthouse he went to that has the official AEW logo on their paperwork yeah on the paperwork and and also how he got it that quick and if that's the case then why is he going to if he's got a lawyer that's on the ball like that why is he going to twitter to plead his case against mandalay bay he could have got an injunction there too but anyway here comes roderick strong walks in the picture He's not banned, he says. I'm not banned, and Adam Cole's a friend of mine and has been for a long time, and I challenge you, Chris Jericho, next week to a Falls Count Anywhere match. Their first match, by the way. Not only their first match, Roderick Strong has had the sum total of one eight-man tag team match in this company and did not win that, was not the person that scored the pin, and now he's coming in getting in Chris Jericho's face, challenging him to a match. It's their very first match, and already it's got to be Falls Count Anywhere. Roderick Strong has never even won yet in this company. And he's known for his in-ring work. He's not really known for his brawling or anything. Exactly. <laughs> he said, I don't want just a match. I want to fight. <laughs> Completely unlike every other match I've ever had in my career. So the, well, the best wrestler they've just recently signed, people are mooning and fucking cooing about you know, switch hitter Jay White and fucking Juice Robinson or whatever. Roderick Strong's the best in-ring wrestler they've signed in, in months, and they want him in a Falls Count Anywhere match with no DQ, lazy booking. And Jericho accepts that, but then Roderick Strong reveals that he has got a, su a surprise too that he got an injunction and all of the Jericho appreciators are banned from the building as well. Every single one of them, four or five of them. Look at that, he was from the same Xerox machine as Jericho's same, paperwork. Yes, yes, from <laughs> direct from Megan's fucking legal portfolio. So now, basically, again, this is ridiculous. It's, it, it's six weeks worth of shit in a 30-second backstage pre-tape and now Jericho's gotten an injunction that Adam Cole can't be anywhere near him. But Roderick Strong, who's never even had a single match yet in this company, wants to face Chris Jericho, and Jericho accepts for a false count anywhere. But, oh, by the way, those five guys that you got running around with you, fuck, they're banned too. I got that. Who's this attorney? Is he working both sides against the middle? Did you notice Renee during this? I mean, I know Jericho and her were kind of going back and forth a little bit, but for a commentator, one that's supposed to be impartial, let alone one married to one of the top heels in the company, she was really hamming it up, I thought, too much with her facial expressions, like digging what Roddy was saying, obviously, against the heel, the dastardly Chris Jericho, but yeah. it was too much. It was over the top. 
well, you know, everybody's got to be a thespian or a thespian or whatever. Um, and what do you want to bet now? Okay, everybody's banned from the building. Falls count anywhere. They're going to fight out of the building, and then everybody that's banned is going to be out in the parking lot and just jump them anyway. All right, and then Renee Moxley Good was at Tony Khan's office, and Thunder Rosa showed up and went inside. How quick did she get from that interview set to Tony Khan's office without being out of breath? Well, there was a break, but she she's a marathon runner. And then what do you, any thoughts on Thunder Rosa returning? No, there was, I mean, it's fine. She's fine, but she did nothing here. She walked up and went inside Tony Khan's office. Well, we talked about it a little earlier with Miro. What are your thoughts on them teasing the idea that again, people who haven't been there in a while are coming back. We know that there's a big announcement next week that we'll discuss shortly, but any thoughts on this being the way they're teasing former stars of this show returning? Well, it, obviously, nobody particularly cared. I, I mean, Miro was nice. He got a pop. It would have been nice if we'd have seen more of him. And they're just setting this up. But they're not going to have Punk show up next week and walk in goddamn Tony's office and close the door. So all they're doing right now, as, as Mama Cornette used to say, when when you would get really good food, but it was a small portion or a really good TV show, but you'd just catch the end of it, or anything you really wanted or you really liked, but you just got just a soup sign. She said, it's just enough to piss you off. Right now, they're giving people just enough to piss them off. They know who people want to return, and it ain't fucking Rosa and Miro right now. I don't know. I think a lot of people want Miro. I mean, I'm not saying it takes away from Punk, well, I mean in and comparison. that's going to be a big deal, but Miro's one of the guys they really could have used on this roster for the last year. Anyway, another four-pillar video. Sammy gets a video. He never got a dinner, but he got a video. The old roast, uh, Dean Martin's roast, if you uh, remember that one. Anyway, so this video mainly consisted of him jumping off shit and taking stupid bumps, but help me, Brian, Sammy's a heel, right? Sammy's the guy that a couple weeks ago was going to take the payoff from MJF, and Sammy is a smart ass with a bitchy girlfriend that goes out and they try to get heat from the people, right? Who have been presented from the little bit I've seen and from what I've heard as baby faces on their reality show, just kids struggling to figure things out in the world of wrestling. But I've said it before, every Sammy promo, he's both baby face and heel yeah. in the same promo. Because here he was uh, pretty much completely babyface. He was giving kids advice to go for their dreams. <laughs> Instead of saying, I'm a fucking star and I got hotter pussy than all of you and I'm going to be the world champion because I'm the greatest and fuck all of you. He's like, kids, if you just keep trying, you can go for your dream. Anything's possible. Hmm. <sighs> So anyway, then Tony Khan was in front of his announcement background where he announced that he's going to have an announcement next week. Let the supposition run wild. What are your thoughts on him announcing an announcement? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's good because he's got the announcement background now with the TBS logo and everything. That looks pretty slick. And, you know, he's got to make sure that people hear the announcement of the announcement that he's going to make so that they will hear it when he makes the announcement. So I think he should have announced it. Do you think he's getting too into being on TV? Probably. <laughs> but at least he's pre-taping shit now. 
And he's not coming out straight from the gorilla position when he's frazzled, his fucking hair's all... But that's the thing, too. It looks so fake because of that. Like, even if you can get past Renee Moxley Good teleporting backstage from one location to another, they're showing you all this backstage stuff, people walking into his office. Next thing you know, he's, like, on a fucking soundstage, you know, doing his announcement without blinking. So, I mean, I know they want to tape it and make sure he does it right, but there has to be a way to naturally incorporate that into the show. I don't know, but the, the announcement next week... People wonder, will it be the the new Saturday night program? Will it be the return of Punk? Will it be uh, both? I would think they could stretch that, and they could certainly get more mileage out of announcing the new Saturday night program first and then leading to that business with Punk, if they indeed have it smoothed over and if there's nothing in the next... What's that show debut? A little over a month. If there's nothing in the next month that the EVPs can do to sabotage whatever's going on. It ain't just them. Well, I mean, all of their minions. Um, They have long tentacles that reach to every corner of the company. It's the only thing on them that's long. You know, a lot of people think the announcement beyond the Saturday show, and uh, if they do announce Punk, I'll be surprised just because people are going to know Punk's going to be at the show they've now entitled The Second Coming in Chicago. <laughs> People are going to figure that out just like they did the first time. But if the announcement is, in fact, again, Wednesday is the upfronts, a new multi-year contract with AEW and Warner Brothers Discovery, we assume hundreds of millions of dollars, another at least hour or two hours of programming on uh, TBS. If that's the announcement, what do you think of that? And what do you think of the crazy rumor that started on the Observer Board this week of it being a billion-dollar deal. Okay, wait, hold on now. First, press pause on that last one. You know what would tickle me? It would shickle me titless. If Punk is indeed instrumental in this deal and getting the second show from Warner Brothers Discovery, and as we were led to believe with leaks and stories floating around, and they announce the new show and they've got that building in Chicago booked and they call it the second coming and everybody buys those tickets. If any of the EVPs or their friends or their stooges or their family members were to fart in Punk's general direction and piss him off at that point, can you imagine what Tony Khan would have if he ended up with a sold-out United Center debut of a live television program again that came to see one thing and punk just wasn't there after if when he rolls the dice to he being tony when he rolls the dice on all this and makes all these announcements and he's made these deals with the network and whatever he better make sure that those little fucking cretinous little crumb snatchers that leech off of him don't do the same thing they've been doing repeatedly over and over because that could lead to his goddamn Waterloo. Oh, sorry, I got a case of hooping belch. Ain't gonna be there, Tony. Anyway, speaking of not being there, the next match on the program was Pockets versus Daniel Garcia. You know, I root for long Pockets matches now because it's more of this stinker that I can skip. And this was at least 15 minutes. Then 
Yeah, you know, the problem's going to be when Tony does him and MJF. Because there's no doubt in my mind that's what Tony wants. I would think at that point that's where MJF has to put his foot down and say, I'm an attraction for you, and more importantly, I'm a commodity in this business, and you're not doing that to me or to us or to your own company. I will not let you commit this self-inflicted wound, you fucking idiot. Hopefully, MJ, MJ Hopefully he doesn't do it in idea. Wembley. <laughs> Hopefully oh, he doesn't do it in Wembley. Anyway, they went from, again, from a complete joke segment, Pockets and whoever, to the best segment of the program. Christian Cage in the ring with his mute stooge Dino douche. I like him when he just stands there and doesn't say anything. And Tony Schiavone interviewing him. And even though, once again, every once in a while, Christian has to tell the interviewer to hold the goddamn microphone up in the right place in, a, in his little subtle way, he gives it the elbow, the little boom. Christian, what a heel. What a promo. Professional, delivery, material, tons of heat from the fans. The demeanor, the facial expressions. I could sit there and listen to him do heel promos all fucking night. And actually... It's even more refreshing right now than MJF's because it's so long since we've really had a chance to hear a lot from Christian that it's even fresher. But uh, again, he did a great promo and ran down Arn Anderson as a flunky horseman, said Wardlow had daddy issues like Jungle Boy. And basically, you know, if, if he's healthy, Christian... If he's healthy and is not injured and can wrestle, here's you a goddamn top heel for fuck's sake. But uh, we haven't seen a lot of him either. But every time they put the microphone in front of him, this was the best segment on the fucking program to me because it's the only one that actually made sense, was professionally done, and has a chance of building to future interest and business. Your your thoughts? I thought it was pretty good. Uh, the crowd was really part of the story, just how over the top they were. Someone told me they were chanting Edge was better at Christian yeah. at various points. When they weren't chanting shut the fuck up. I think Christian, you know, I can't see him as a top heel. And part of the reason is he does like one amazing promo every seven months. And then everything in between... I don't well, know. But we don't even see him most of the time during that seven months. He's had one match in... Remember when I the, don't know how long he was injured, his arm, yes, but now he's saying he's going to wrestle this match with Wardlow or whatever. The, I don't know what's going on. But the Jungle Boy stuff started with Christian doing a couple of weeks of with the turtleneck for the first time. Amazing promos. And then that quickly yeah. got tiresome. Great promo here. It would be a good promo without the crowd. It was a great promo with the crowd. We'll see where they go with this. I don't know. You know, again, I always... Whether it's Christian or Edge or CM Punk, any of these guys that return after a long time off and they're in their 40s, I'm always wary about how much you're going to get out of them before they get hurt again. Not that you can't use them still on the show when they're hurt, but I don't know about in the ring, especially Christian, because we've seen it now a few times. How many times has he been hurt in AEW? Two or three times? Well, out of that... May not all be his fault now. You know what they do over there. But I don't care if they've got to wheel Christian Cage out in an iron lung. I'd take him over 90% of the roster here. Uh, but uh, another pillar package. 
And this was for Darby Allen, and of course he was skateboarding and jumping shit. And did you hear the voiceover that he did when he his comments while they were showing him doing all this various stuff? He yeah. does this various crazy stuff, and this is a quote to break down mental barriers in his head and make him understand he's capable of more than people told him he was. So he's risking his life, limb, neck, jumping over shit, doing horrible damage to his body to make himself understand that he's capable of more than people told him he was. Couldn't he have just not listened to him? Couldn't he have just said, you know what? I don't really agree with those people. I think I'm capable of a lot more than that. Did he have to break every bone in his body to convince himself of that? That's my question. Well, then one of the pillars would be a boring accountant or something. This is who Darby is. Well, that's why I wrote he's weird but likable. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. I, I can't understand his thinking, but I understand that he does have a weird, unique charisma and again, a missed opportunity that this is not a single match with all the positive focus on MJF or Darby and all the negative focus on MJF. Good guy, bad guy. Anyway, then speaking of, we went from good and bad to now indifferent. A no disqualification, no count out, anything goes match no holds barred and I'm on the edge of my seat. And then they say Anna J versus Julia Hart. Did they say no holds barred or no hose barred? I'm trying to, who was calling for a no disqualification. Anything goes match with weapons with Anna J and Julia Hart. <laughs> They were. Yeah. Remember the last time the women's uh, hardcore tag team match was on the show is because they specifically asked Tony for it and they wanted it. And Tony said, yes. Well, Anna Jay glommed Julia Hart from behind while she was on her way to the ring during the entrance, hit her from the, from behind with a chair. And then when she had hit her opponent from the back with a chair and she was down at her feet, she left her opponent, walked a hundred feet away and got a garbage can. And they were on the floor, and they had kendo sticks, and the crowd chanted, we want tables, because the furniture is more over than the talent. And I wrote, they've sent two green, inexperienced girls that are not particularly smart to what the business is and probably aren't ready to wrestle on national TV out there to do an indie garbage match and just make everything meaningless. And the finish was... Julia Hart superplexing Anna Jay off the top rope onto chairs that were laid out in the middle of the ring, but they came up short and missed the chairs completely. So when Anna Jay realized that she didn't land on any chairs, did you see she rolled over on her knees and looked and scrambled over onto the top of the chairs as quickly as she could, like nobody would have noticed? One, two, three. Uh, any uh, further comments on that contest? A few things. One, this was the 9 o'clock hour. This is where they went to for 9 o'clock. We saw that disastrous Britt Baker-Anna Jay house show match. Anna Jay has a great look, but I think you shouldn't have people 
Part of the problem is if you can't work a regular match, you shouldn't have them working the no DQ falls count anywhere, no right. holds barred match. Right. We've never seen them work a regular match. This is the first time we've seen them. Apparently they've been having a feud somewhere that's really big and hot and heavy. It's just we have no idea about it if we watch the this show. This is the first time Julia Hart's ever wrestled on the Wednesday night program. And now she's in a protected group. And she has a great look. And remember I said she's got a great look. Don't let her wrestle and spoil it. And that's the problem. They probably thought that if we let her go out there and actually wrestle and work a match, it's going to be a problem. It has to be a hardcore match because then we can hide all the weaknesses. And, you know, Anna Jay, great look. If she's willing to take these bumps, because she got her ass kicked in that last tag team hardcore match they had. Remember, she got concussed or whatever it was, hurt her tailbone. I forget what it was. She's willing to take these bumps, either make her, I hate to say Jungle Boy because they're in a real relationship, but make her someone's fucking manager and let her take those bumps off the apron but not as a wrestler because it'll mean more but instead it was just kind of like we can do it too and that's what this was at the nine o'clock hour and again if, yeah you know roddy versus jericho next week goes right to i don't even remember it's either no dq or false count anywhere whatever it yeah, is false count anywhere first time we've seen them wrestle this is the first time we've seen these two wrestle same thing well but speaking of rules the House of Black was up next, or should I say the House of Blech? Blucka. So now there's. Did you say Blucka? Blucka. Young Frankenstein. Blucka, Blucka, okay. Blucka. Frau Blucka. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the House of Blucka are the six man champions now, and they've got their own rules that they have just decided to to use and nobody can stop them apparently it's a 20 count on the outside not a 10 count of course it's five minutes in every AEW match anyway so that really we're not going to notice anything any three people can form a trio to challenge them which already happens there are no rope breaks in the match because they don't want people to puss out okay you can be disqualified. So it's a basically a regular match in AEW uh, is, is uh, always has no disqualification whatsoever. So this is a special one because you can be disqualified. And the last rule is dealer's choice where the challengers get to pick a rule. So they have the House of Blech against Muffin Top and Cupcake, the Puddin' Gang, and Bandito. And now they also have special lighting for this shit, where it's darker and spookier for the House of Black's match. And I I can't seriously watch this because it's the Puddin' Gang, but the House of Black apparently won fairly easily. But then as soon as the match was over, they went to a shot in the back at the monitor, and there was... Our little puppy Pockets, who had been watching his friends, the Puddin' Gang, is down on the floor selling, and a guy's standing over him, and he's got two belts. I think one of Pockets is, and then, I don't know, maybe he's got a belt too, everybody else does, and the announcers say, who's that? What? It's, it's Kyle Fletcher! And then in runs Arnold Finster and Frank Forget About It. And it, it, so 
they're have while they're doing a gimmick match in the ring, they're having some guy that's in Ozzy Oldham, the tag team, that's not related to any of this shit, beating up the fucking guy that's watching the match on the monitor in the back, and uh, and nobody knew who the fuck he was when you looked at him because he's been on TV what three times in a tag team. And in, in the last time was in a tag team battle royal. They didn't even announce him. Well, now we get to see him in pockets, which is exactly what no one was demanding. Good Lord. What did you think of the... And I'm going to be curious how much longer they go with this. What did you think of the look for the House of Black match? The idea of turning out the lights, but having the video screens on and having, uh, and having just static images or various different things on there to light up the room? Well, that's... Uh, again, you can't polish a turd. If there was anything interesting or that was going to draw any money about the House of Black or Revolutionary or whatever, that'd be great to do special lighting treatments and et cetera for them. But it's the fucking House of Black with goofy Mark six-man tag rules against people that nobody gives a shit. So we'll see how long that lasts. Did you like Jungle Jack's package? Talking to me or Anna Jay? I'm talking to you. Jungle Jack's package, you know, probably a lot smaller than MJF's, but still I've figured it might be entertaining, and then I found out why. Apparently, ladies and gentlemen, Jungle Boy Jack Perry started training, this is from his own mouth, from his own lips, started training to be a pro wrestler when he was nine or ten. And they, he actually said, my parents found me a place to train and they showed pictures of him as a child in a ring in somebody's backyard with a bunch of goofs in t-shirts. He really legitimately did train in a backyard with nobodies. I think we've been saying it. It's like that he was never trained. It's like that he just started practicing this shit on his own. We were right. He was a kid playing wrestler, trained by a nobody in some guy's back. He even called him some guy in some guy's backyard. I know backyard. who it was. Wasn't it Rick Drayson? I don't know who the fuck it was. But anybody taking money to train a 10-year-old kid should be on a registry somewhere. Any professional wrestling training program that would accept a 10-year-old kid unless it's being run by the kid's father should be reported somewhere. And he was a kid playing wrestler and in a ring in the backyard. And you know that once whoever found out that his father was a TV star the price went up and it was like, oh yeah, let me do this. And so they were indulging the kid and it was like, if I wanted to pretend to be one of the fucking UofL Cardinals out in my driveway, shooting baskets at my goal, that's what he was doing. But he's, <laughs> he never broke out of that. He broke in with the people that were playing wrestler by the people that were playing wrestler and that's continued to be who he is. He doesn't understand anything else. So it makes sense now. He has the... We don't train kids. My dad's on 90210. Well, when do you want to start? Yeah. And I hope you carry your bag in. Jungle Boy has the most superficial understanding of the wrestling business of all four of them. And this is why, in my opinion. 
And then we get to the main event that everybody wanted to talk about. Now, I'll talk about this, and then I may have to go relieve myself because it's going to give me gas again. Their big pay-per-view main event on this pay-per-view card, a cage match. Old Twinkle Toes himself, Kenny Olivier against Plummer Moxley. And they promoted this one and beat it to death. And for the, again, for the AEW fan, for the kind of people who like that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing those people like. And I will say this briefly. I'm not going to try to talk about really any story they told or what they did in this fucking match. As far as having a match, I'm going to, give you the high points of the ridiculousness of it, but let me make this clear. I can understand, and I've said this on the program, and when we talked about the match he had in Japan recently, I can understand a bit of the appeal of Kenny. Overlook his past actions with children and sex toys. Don't care that he's a mush-mouthed douchebag nerd. If you can get past his funny faces gesticulating and prancing if you can pay no heed to the rotten booking that he's always involved in if you can let it matter not that you never really know if he's a baby face or a heel because he does the same shit regardless and if you can be unfazed by his boring personality and lack of ever really being believably angry or violent he's athletic and his presentation in Japan, where they like the guy jeans anyway, makes him look a lot better than he is, and I can understand that appeal. And if you like video game wrestling matches, I can see where you could tolerate this fucking guy. But explain to me Moxley. He looks like an outlaw mud show piece of shit. He acts like an outlaw mud show piece of shit. And just like his hero and boyfriend, the bank-addicted drug robber, all he's ever going to be is an outlaw mud show piece of shit. And is this some type of, I don't know, mass hysteria? Like when, when Vince managed to convince people for a couple of years that the Ultimate Warrior was worth a shit? That everybody's just blind? It's some kind of hysteria? I told you what it was. It's a true cult of personality. CM Punk comes out to the song, but it's a real thing. It's a concept beyond the song. That's what we have with Moxley and the AEW fans. Why would anybody want to be around this guy's personality? That I couldn't tell you, but that's what it is. I mean, you know, the fucking, the fucking former football players they do on Family Guy with, you know, coming up over the far turn there, you know, like that. He's a fucking mental case. He's He's got chronic concussion whatever so anyway they start this match the first action that you see because moxley leaves the cage and jumps kenny on the floor and the first action you see is kenny throwing the fakest weakest girliest punches at moxley not even connecting just and they're just swinging their arms and hands they're not throwing anything at anybody it's just meaningless motion. Can I jump in here? Please. Because I don't have a, as big a problem with Omega as you do, and you know where I stand on Moxley, but you're being almost too nice about not just Omega, but both of their punches, but Omega's were towards the camera, so you get to see what they were. I mean, yeah, it, they were just whiffs. I mean, it wasn't even like 
I'm gonna try to make this look good. I'm just gonna swing. It looked it looked really fake to me. That's what they're doing. That's what because they're too busy trying to concentrate on Moxley wants to bleed and be violent and Doofus wants to be a video game character. So they can't be bothered to do shit that actually looks good, which is my problem with both of them. The fucking guy can dive off the roof and do triple flips, can't throw a fucking punch. So I made notes. Sloppy brawling. Claudio and Useless come out, and they jump fucking whoosie whatsy. And then here comes the Hardly Boys with super kicks. They throw Useless off the stage, and then Claudio throws Maddie off the stage, and then Nikki dives off the stage. The match has been forgotten. We don't even see where the cage is or where the people are. And I wrote Morbid Curiosity. I can't skip this. I've got to see how bad it is. So security broke up the fights outside. They get in the cage, and they do a fake one-two that nobody sells. Then they stand there and trade chops on purpose. The one-two. The one-two got me, because Moxley does that in every one of his matches. Here these guys are. Apparently, they hate each other. Both of their cliques are fighting at ringside. The stupidest part with the stage, with the dive off the stage, whatever. They get in there. After all this... Now let's trade back and forth. But it's not just let's trade. I'm going to hit you. Now I'm going to stand here, take a breath, and stick my chest out. If you watch it and actually time it, it was ridiculous. It was just, I'm going to feed you. Why? What is the point of that? Is it, I'm a badass so you can hit me? What is the point in doing that he does it in every match? He did it here after jump-starting it. And then Kenny threw some more fake punches that Moxley doesn't sell. He doesn't even register when somebody punches him. He just throws it back. It's so phony. And then Kenny did some flips. And then he pulled a barbed wire wrapped chair from between the ring and the cage and pulled it in. And now they're using a... Kenny hits the plumber in the back with the barbed wire chair, then stomps on it. And so now, dipshit, not only the plumber, his back is bleeding and his head is bleeding. And I wrote, why not put Ian Rotten on national television and give all the fans free hepatitis? This is, for the lowest common denominator, this is garbage television for stupid people. And it's it's so embarrassing that they... They call this pro wrestling, and the only alternative to this is Vince's fairyland. So you either got to look at wrestling for five-year-olds or garbage wrestling for convicted felons. There's no in-between. And again, I said it at the top, the commentating on this match, the commentating on this match was so atrocious. Until they acknowledge and recognize how counterproductive Excalibur and Shivani are together... This show is just so hard to not put mute on. They're horrible. I, again, I don't know if this is actual, real, legitimate four-prong barbed wire. I don't know if they're getting two-prong. I don't know if they're clipping some of them. They were definitely cutting their back up. Moxley cut his own head, big news. He does that on live television constantly. But it wasn't like... Anybody that's ever worked with any kind of barbed wire, if they'd have done with real barbed wire, unaltered barbed wire in some fashion, what they did here, they would their skin would have been hanging in shreds. But they were still cutting themselves up, so they're taking some step to mitigate it. But it's still stupid, and this still looks believable as barbed wire, which makes both of them complete idiots. And why would you want to see this? 
And it, because they're not doing a good enough job of making you convinced they're really fighting. They're obviously cooperating, but they're still getting hurt. And that's the stupidest thing I can think of. So it's dope. Anyway, they unscrewed the top turnbuckle. The top rope was down and Moxley had the hook in Kenny's mouth. And I re again, with Mr. Badass Plumber Moxley, I would love to see Moxley just go up nose to chest and have that badass look in a real situation in a bar somewhere with Steve Williams. And, and just in, in their... If we had a time machine and they could in their respective primes when we still had Doc with us. And I think, in my opinion, that Plumber Moxley, if he was on the wrong side of Steve Dr. Death Williams in a real situation, would do one of two things. He'd either be hospitalized in 25 seconds or Dr. Death would have made an appetizer out of him and eaten him in about 15. So, anyway... Then they got tied up in the rope, and then Moxley goes and pulls out a bag, and it's broken glass. And that's why I wrote, can someone send him to mental rehab now that we got the alcohol rehab out of the way so they can see what this fucking major malfunction is in his brain pan. And then he took a bump in his own glass, and as he took the bump in the glass, he sells it for like five seconds and then grabs a sleeper on Kenny. And at that, that's the point I said, this is too ridiculous. There's eight minutes left on the air. I'm fast-forwarding. So I fast-forwarded to the point where Kenny hits him with his little Canterbury knee, and this time they'd gimmick the cage. They went through the cage to the floor, and that looked pretty good because Kenny almost broke his fucking leg when he got hung across the thing, so it looked like it really hurt people because it probably did. When you say got hung across the thing, Kenny hits the knee on Moxley, but when Moxley goes through the cage, Kenny goes with him, but his leg is in between the cage and the ring stuck yeah. there. I mean, he's lucky he didn't tear everything right there. Yeah, and, and he crotched himself on the metal cross beam of the cage while he stuck his right leg in between the cage and the ring, so he could have broken the leg. Thank God when he fucking landed crotch first on that railing, there's nothing in that part of his body to fucking injure. So then... <laughs> Moxley gets a screwdriver and he's going to stab Kenny in the face. But that's where Don Fallis comes in. And he grabs the screwdriver away from Moxley and then, you know, bails out to the corner or something where... In a cartoony way. In a, a very cartoony way to call attention to... It wasn't like, I'm a really, I'm a pussy begging for my life. It's like, I'm showing you that I'm acting. And then Kenny... Now that Moxley's been relieved of the screwdriver, Kenny grabs the plumber and hits the one-winged fairy on him and covers him, and Phallus comes back from behind and stabs. And I'm talking a big stabbing motion. He's got a fucking screwdriver, whether it's a flathead or a Phillips. If you stabbed someone in the top of the head as hard as he worked that he did... Point is, Kenny sells his head, but he wasn't bleeding right away. And Moxley crawled over and covered him one, two, three. And then they keep the camera off Kenny forever while everybody's going, why would Don do this? Why would he do such a thing? And it's a close-up of Don. 
And finally, about two minutes later, when they felt like he'd accomplished it, Don goes back over and stands over him, and Kenny looks up, and he's got a pap smear. Possibly a busted pimple. This fucking pussy. In the main event of this big cage match and this hardcore wrestling promotion is supposed to get juice by being stabbed in the head with a screwdriver. And he's so scared of doing it, he gets a pap smear for a fucking screwdriver stabbing. Why do it? Couldn't be a situation like Luger in 88 in Baltimore where you're supposed to get it, but for whatever reason, it doesn't happen? You know what the reason was? What was the reason? He'd almost never done it, and he was scared to fuck of doing it. So it was just like that. <laughs> that's what happened. And that's what happened. So then, Don goes to stab him again while all the male referees are standing around. This is not Brock Lesnar. This is not Andre the Giant. This is Don Fallis, the manager. And he's going to stab the guy in the head with a screwdriver and the male referees are all standing around same size as him. No, please don't do that. But then Don decides not to, throws the screwdriver down, grabs Kenny, and kisses him on the face and says something to him and leaves the ring. Did you hear Excalibur? I mean, it was so bad. I almost wish I had the exact words in front of me. It was, he's practically family. He's literally family. Well, I mean, he's basically a son that I couldn't figure <laughs> out what to say to describe this stupid relationship. So he just said like, every single f family relationship someone could have, he associated to these two guys. Well, this was one of the worst televised matches that I've ever seen from any wrestling promotion ever. And I guarantee you that the fucking AEW fans couldn't have loved anything more if you'd have wrapped it up in a fucking bow and given it to them with a brand new car. You're right about that. And that's... The AEW fans loved it. And that end is where the problem is because you're not going to get anybody but the small amount of people that like this kind of fucking hokey-ass bullshit to watch this hokey-ass bullshit. But if they don't ever try to do something more professional and something that doesn't make wrestling all look like the goddamn guy that bites the fucking heads off the live chickens at the county fair, then this is all they're ever going to fucking do. Can Punk even save this? You know, again, not taking away what you think about Omega, I didn't have a problem with Omega here, and I thought Omega, to his credit, has been taking things a little more seriously in terms of how they've been doing it. You notice they didn't do the whole North Carolina introduction for him. It well, was yeah, just... well, he still he was he was throwing fake punches, and his work looks right. like shit. But at least they didn't, you know, comedy it up even worse. I don't expect his punches to suddenly get good, so I mean that doesn't surprise me. But at least his promos haven't been as silly, and they gave him a regular introduction. He's had a cartoon manager who's only there because of who his friends are. There's been a tease for a while about this breakup, the stuff with Don Callis and Takeshita, Don Callis getting cut, Blackpool Combat Club saying you have to bleed with us to join us. So this has been teased for a while. But again, this isn't like Bobby Heenan or Jimmy Hart or Jim Cornette or Gary Hart or some big, long-established heel manager that was all of a sudden with the baby face because the heel turned baby face and then he turned on him to me this isn't that at all they've tried to make phallus and omega a thing 
Omega's a thing. Callus is just there with him because, again, who his friends are. But the Moxley matches are terrible. Now you got Don Callis in the middle of this. Do you think they're going to propel this to Wembley, or are they going to tie this all together sooner? I I couldn't possibly give a shit. I just, I, you know, again, Kenny, for the kind of people who like that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing those people like. I can't see what anybody sees in this fucking Moxley from the visual to the work to the to the attitude that he has toward the business, to the fact that he acts like this and refuses to use his status to teach younger guys the good and bad habits. Instead, he teaches them all the bad and none of the good. He's a bad influence on anybody that wants to be a wrestler because they might think that they should do some of this bullshit too. That's the thing about Moxley. For the people, because we hear from people every now and then, they're like, you got to watch his stuff. He's hard hitting. He's this and that. His stuff looks bad. Everything he does in the ring that he thinks makes himself look like a badass looks horrible. His punches look like shit. The elbows look like shit. The forearms look like shit. Everything he does looks bad. So if you're ignoring all that to say his matches are good. And plus it's constant bad wrestling and bad taste in wrestling. And he, he encourages the whole garbage deathmatch bullshit. He encourages younger guys to fucking do this outlaw indie shit that's going to limit their career and limit their potential and limit their choices. I'm not just talking about getting hurt and limiting your career. I'm talking about the WWE sees people, and if they see you doing that shit, they're going to fucking roll their eyes and move on with the barbed wire and the broken glass and the bullshit. They may take it from some guy that's established somehow and they can say, well, he just doesn't have to do that. We can still use him, but they're not going to take rookies into their training program when they're most noted for rolling around in broken glass. And one more thing on Omega here. And again, I know you disagree with a lot of the stuff on Omega, but it hits me watching this. I mean, Kenny Omega is a guy that from the beginning of AEW has been presented by AEW as a main eventer, not always booked like one, but they present him like one. To me, he's so much more valuable as a singles wrestler than in trios matches or anything else. Like, we don't get to just see singles matches. That's really, if you're a Kenny Omega fan, isn't that what you want? Well, one would think, but I was figuring Kenny's been injured so many times. They just want to, and the the buckaroos, they just want to have belts and play with their friends. So that they were trying to hide Kenny's injuries in the six-mans. But he seemed to be moving around just fine when Moxley had a goddamn turnbuckle hook in his fucking jaw. That was the same hook that ripped apart the arm of Cash Wheeler on TV. Well, no, I'm pretty sure they've changed the hook. Well, you know what I mean. It did nothing <laughs> yeah. to Omega. It was in his mouth yeah. against his cheek. Well, what's he supposed to do? Blade his fucking cheek open? You don't like do the spot. Go smile. You don't do the spot. That's, that's what you do. Well, exactly. Don't do the spot. Well, that was AEW anyway. Dynamite. All right, now I know the number. I've I've gotten a heads up on the numbers that, again, they're no better or worse than they usually are, but that people actually wanted to see this. Basically, two guys dropping down and taking a shit in the middle of the ring, so they did better at the end of the program. But what are the exact statistics this week? This week's AEW Dynamite, May 10th on TBS, was watched by, on average, 877,000 viewers. And over the past several weeks, it's been 860, 830, 830, 860, 860. So we're in the, about in the range. 
Well, the show opened up, and these were compiled by WrestleNomics. The show opened up 8 to 8, 15 p.m., segment one. Claudio Castagnoli versus Ray Phoenix with picture-in-picture, 866,000 viewers. And again, we got to have somebody find out for us if if the business, the Big Bang Theory business, the bottom's dropping out of it because they were always over a million at the start. Now they're not even over 900 at the start, and that's the Big Bang. Well, again, what, what they're handing off. A lot of things happening on TV right now, specifically with the NBA, so that may play a part of it. But segment two, 8.15 to 8.30 p.m., Miro backstage, the MJF video, the Blackpool Combat Club and Elite video, FTR, Mark Briscoe, Jay Lethal, Jeff Jarrett, Sanjay Dutt, Satnam Singh's live angle, and Chris Jericho and Roddy Strong's backstage angle, 859,000 viewers. So they only lost 7,000. That ain't as bad as normal. So every once in a while, it's 100,000. Well, they started so much lower here, but segment three, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m., Thunder Rosa showing up backstage. The Sammy Guevara video, Tony Khan's backstage announcement of a future announcement, and Orange Cassidy versus Daniel Garcia, 880,000 viewers. Can you believe that? They got 21,000 back. Actually, more than back. They didn't have them to begin with. I do believe that because I also think, unless you knew the main event was on last, and if you wanted to see it, you'd probably start tuning in closer to nine o'clock thinking it could be then very true continue segment four the continuation of orange cassidy versus daniel garcia with picture in picture as well as an outcast and hikaru shida video and christian cage's promo eight hundred and seventy-eight thousand viewers And they only lost two, so they're flat again. So apparently in this particular week, everybody that started out with this program said, okay, we want to watch this tonight. They've given us the pay-per-view level lineup, so we're going to stick with it. There's very, this is the, this is the least variation they've had. They've been down seven and up 14 from the start, the whole fucking show through so far. Segment five, the nine o'clock hour, nine to nine fifteen p.m. Darby Allen's video, as well as Anna J versus Julia Hart with picture in picture, falls count anywhere or no holds barred. I think that's what it was. Yes, eight hundred and seventy-seven thousand viewers. <laughs> so they only lost a thousand more. If they didn't run them off with Anna J and Julia Hart, they ain't going anywhere. Segment six, nine fifteen to nine thirty p.m. Orange Cassidy and the Best Friends promo, as well as the House of Black versus Bandito and the Best Friends with Picture in Picture, 842,000 viewers. Ouch, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Anna Jay and Julia Hart didn't run them off, but Pockets did. There's 35,000. They just wanted to get away from him. They promised they'd come back. Segment 7, 9.30 to 9.45 p.m. Kyle Fletcher is attacking Orange Cassidy backstage. Jack Perry's video, Ricky Starks' video, and the beginning of Kenny Omega versus John Moxley, 880,000 viewers. And son of a bitch, they came right back as soon as they cut pockets off the screen. And finally, 
segment eight, 9.45 to 10 p.m. John Moxley versus Kenny Omega in a cage with picture-in-picture, picture, as well as the post-match angle with Don Callis. 937,000 viewers. And that is amazing that they picked up another 57,000 people in the, the, the last segment that they never grow in, that they hemorrhage viewers in. And that can you remember another AEW program where the last 15 minutes was the highest rated quarter in the whole program? I don't think there's ever been one. I'm looking for it now. I don't know about highest rated quarter, but I think the last time I remember a rise, I got to check here, may have been the Kenny Omega versus El Hijo del Vikingo match. <clears throat> Which again goes into something so, about if Kenny Omega is the guy who at the very beginning of AEW, a lot of fans were pumped up to see, and then AEW, they made him the world champion, but you could argue about how well he's been booked or not booked. Right. People still want to see him as a single star, I think, more than they want to see every other way they've been using him. And again, there may be physical limitations because of his injuries. That well, he can't but do I it. think, I think you're right because think about it. The best of seven series where people had to watch him and the buckaroos and the six mans, they lost six figures of viewers at, at the end of every program. And every time he's in another one of these multi-person things with his little friends, it loses viewers. But then of course this was a cage match, but still, as a single, for whatever reason, people want to see this douchebag. So I have to admit that. Hey, I, I found it right here, AEW Dynamite, March 22nd. The show opened, for the record, 1,016,000 viewers. That was Darby and Orange Cassidy and Sting versus the Butcher to Blade and Kip Sabian. But segment three, which was the Factory video and Tony Storm versus Sky Blue, was 9-11. And then it went up to 965 and 969 for the final two, which was Kenny Omega versus El Hijo del Vikingo. So not a huge rise, but certainly over segment uh, six, there was a rise. Boy, I tell you what, if it had been my television program, I'd have like, Jesus Christ, almost a million people watched the last 15 minutes for the first time, and they have to see that. It was just, I don't care whether people watched it or not, it was embarrassing. And... You may have liked it as a fan, but if you're in the wrestling business, again, I draw the analogy. Does a fucking, the star of the Metropolitan Opera get offended when they hear Millie Vanilli selling records? It's, it's, it's the shits. It's embarrassing. And I don't know that you should want to root for people to watch this kind of stuff because then it makes people want to do more of this kind of shit and then we're where we are today, because that's all they've done now for the past 20 years to do more of that shit. Uh, the, problem is, the problem is the Moxley stuff specifically. Tony lets him do anything he wants to do, and his ideas are really, really bad. Brock Lesnar experienced that years ago. <laughs> Other people in that company may have experienced that too. Moxley has bad ideas that he's convinced are really good, and he wants to do them, and he only wants to do them. And to me, it's just as lame as it could be. It was just a manufactured group that he put together. He declared they were dope. They're feuding with the elite. We really don't even know why. Danielson couldn't even comprehensively explain or coherently explain why last week. We're doing this because we want to make you better. And we want people to be better. And you're amateur. Where is this it, coming it from? It always improved me when somebody would correct me by stabbing me in the face with a screwdriver. Not very good. But 
their people seem to like it, and that was AEW Dynamite. All right. Well, if if you guys are all out there in podcast land, tired of me and Brian telling you what an insufferable moron Plumber Moxley is, and believe me, I'm tired of telling you what an insufferable moron he is. Before we move on to SmackDown and other more uh, productive pursuits, I thought we should let Plumber Moxley, in his own words, tell you what an insufferable moron he is. Apparently, Sports Illustrated's standards have fallen through the basement, and they are now... I guess uh, to uh, why are they verbally filleting uh, secondary wrestling stars on SportsIllustrated.com these days? Remember, it was on the drive-through a few days ago that we got other emails from a different article where John Moxley said that the BCC Elite Feud is the apex of wrestling, and then Kenny Omega said that Moxley is the MVP of AEW, and now. I guess everyone's done blowing each other. It's one last chance for SI to blow Moxley on the way out. Well, and and they did, and I'm that's what I'm asking you. Before we go into this article, when did it become a thing that Sports Illustrated just I mean, you can read some of the quotes, but this is so off the charts. It's a PR piece. I wish that I'd had some PR people in my various promotions that could write as glowing an article and a, a press release as this was from supposedly a news organization. And if, yes, if people like their promotion or like their matches or like the people that he's talking about, that's one thing, but to literally bend over forward and suck your own self while you're blowing everybody else is this, it's, it's not even a promotions article. It's sports illustrated. What has happened over there? Do they talk this way about the baseball players? No one gets this kind of glowing coverage. And I think part of the reason is because if you want to cover AEW or WWE seriously, they're not going to let you. You kind of have to play ball with them. You can't really, you know, John Moxley I mean, wasn't going to be made available to... if this article was going to be um, negative towards AEW or looking at things well, that I'm aren't not even, positive. I'm not even talking about negative. I'm not even talking about not being positive. I'm talking about, my God, this is uh, Hollywood in the 30s. Hedda Hopper could have put this out. It's not in any way a professional journalistic approach to cover it. That's why I'm asking you, do they talk about the baseball teams or the baseball players this way? No. Except like like Ruth and Cobb and Mantle and... Well, no, they don't even do that anymore. I mean, that's the way they talked about them back in the day. Now it's all like, he was a hot dog-eating, whore-chasing bastard. Well, but, <laughs> but I'm just... I'm, I guess... Read, read some of... Read not only some of the plumber, if we're going to have fun with this, but read some of the more glowing knob polishing of the promotion in this article, because I I clicked yeah. on it. I couldn't believe it. No, And with all due respect, I don't know Justin Barrasso. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. I think he's interviewed me a couple of times, and, and I don't remember having a happy ending like this. Is there any article that SI.com has done about professional wrestling with either Justin Barrasso or whoever else would be covering it over there that has been a serious look at professional wrestling or serious coverage instead of, I mean, this is fan club coverage is what this is. 
There, that, that's a good term. So the the fan club coverage. John Moxley. Um, oh, I'm going. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just saying the fan club coverage. I was going to say proceed. From SI.com by Justin Barrasso, John Moxley and Kenny Omega showed why AEW stands apart in a crowded wrestling landscape. The violent match encapsulated what Moxley calls the company's fuck you attitude. <laughs> Let me scroll down. A bloody match you don't usually see on TV is the heading. Actually, you see plenty of bloody matches on AEW TV. But I was about to say, yeah, but no, go ahead. John Moxley defeated Kenny Omega on Wednesday night in the main event of Dynamite. In a gory, violent, sprint of a match, Moxley showcased the best of AEW. <laughs> More than just a match, it captured the entire essence of the company. <laughs> Hold on. I had not read any of this except for the quotes. This is bullshit. That's, that's, yeah, what is I'm telling you. <laughs> The match illustrated why AEW is a different commodity from any other mainstream promotion in North America. Within mere minutes, Moxley was covered in blood and delivering an assault. Omega, who is the healthiest he has been in years after fighting off numerous injuries, was his usual spectacular self, <laughs> alternating between brawler and technician with flawless precision. I didn't put Lawler over like this when I was writing the programs in the 80s. Again, too, part of the problem is if you want access to certain wrestlers, or wrestlers in general, but specifically certain wrestlers, too, you kind of have to kiss their ass like this. But is it okay? It's Sports Illustrated. Are they I mean, that's why I don't do it. if they don't talk to fucking Moxley? No. No, okay. but I mean, this... Again, there had to be another way to write this so it wasn't, I'm going to blow him, and now let's blow him again. Well, hold on, let me give you some. A sharply defined clash of styles is visible anytime Moxley and Omega share the ring. Though they possess different skill sets, both carry an unrelenting drive to deliver the best matches possible. So despite the storyline differences between the elite and the BBC, there is a genuine respect between the men who form those two groups. Okay, well, let's get some Moxley quotes. Uh, I'm not going to do the voice. Oh, you gotta. You gotta. It's not going to end here, says Moxley, speaking after the match. This was only the beginning. We're bringing our A game. We're competitive with each other, and we're competitive with the rest of the wrestling industry. There's a lot on the line, so no one is taking a step backward. We're showing why we're the superior group. And then they had your paragraph there, so I'll continue with Moxley. This rivalry between us is the cutting edge of the business. You might be more into something else, but look at who is involved here. <laughs> Kenny Omega may be the greatest wrestler that ever lived. <laughs> Brian Danielson may be the greatest wrestler that ever lived. <laughs> Claudio Castagnoli may be the absolute alien pretending to be a human Superman fucking freak wrestler. To ever live. <laughs> the Young Bucks may be the greatest tag team of all time. <sighs> Even if you think I fucking suck, you <laughs> still have all these greats. A lot of people out there hate on the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. We're obviously attacking them and have our issues with them. But we're not old ass fucking bitter dudes with podcasts talking about how the business used to be. 
We now are, wait, wait one second. Wait we one are second. not that. Wait one second. I am old ass. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'm still fucking. <sighs> I'm not bitter. I think exasperated and disgusted fits more uh, to the purpose there. And I'm not talking about how the business used to be. I'm talking about how it should be. And uh, it would be improved if they didn't let people like this in it to poison everyone's mind with their phoniness or their silliness or their fake toughness. Continue. You're very defensive. I was talking about Jim Ross. <laughs> A lot of people hate Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, and that's because they hate themselves. Now, I didn't understand this. Why do, why do Kenny and the Buckaroos hating themselves make other people hate them? Let's go with the idea there is a segment of the wrestling audience, a segment that hates the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega that hates themselves. I mean, it has to be. I'm sure there is. No, I thought he was saying that the, the people hate Kenny and the, and the Buckaroos because Kenny and the Buckaroos hate themselves. A lot of people hate Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, and that's because they hate themselves. Oh, well, let's continue on here. It's well, I mean, don't say what you were going to say. I, I interpreted it that way. I figured Kenny and the Bucks are just miserable, and that's why they want everybody else to be miserable, too. I mean, it's just such a silly take, the idea that you could only hate the Bucks and Omega if you hate yourself. I'm very fond of myself. I pleasure myself regularly All right, also. No one, no one wants to hear any of this. Let me go back okay. to John Moxley here. It's sad. <laughs> there are plenty of people who hate me. I don't give a fuck. I don't care what challenges you put in front of me or what shit befalls me. I'm very pissed off. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm very pissed off. I will shove it up everyone's flying ass. <laughs> I'm going to ride on Darby Allen's back all the way up Mount Everest next year. After last year, I have that attitude. Kenny and the Young Bucks have that attitude. It's us against the universe. That attitude is AEW at its core. Why is he building up his opponents? I don't know. Also, why is he mad at the universe? What did the universe do? Well, I guess Mother Nature did fucking shortchange him. When, when they were passing out brains, he thought they said trains and said, I'll take the last one. But anyway, a, this, this, a, this article, <laughs> hold on one second. I got I, just a couple of brief quotes. A captivating cage match. Showcasing the elements that make AEW unique. Violence in play stayed true to all those involved. Uh, the savage side of Moxley came forward as he brought a barbed wire chair. Can you imagine somebody perusing Sports Illustrated for the NBA fucking playoff news and accidentally sees this? He brought a barbed wire chair. Wait, hold what on. The fuck that's, is that? That's not even true, though. Didn't Omega pull up the barbed wire chair? Yeah, but from under the Mo ring, Moxley uh, Moxley ended up using it too. So this guy, well, you couldn't remember all that shit. Eh. Uh, oh, and then later dropping shards of glass on the canvas. Shards, shards. Omega hit a snapdragon suplex on Moxley onto the glass. A sequence that will not soon be seen in any other major promotion <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah, think. I mean, del they delighted in finding innovative ways to be violent. What is, has he got his dick in his hand while he's writing this? Or whose dick is in his hand? Is there any serious wrestling writing out there? That's the question. Can anyone write about wrestling without blowing everyone they're writing about? 
I, I, I'm again. I'm astonished at the astonished. I'm astonished at the astonishingness of this. Uh, yeah, he says Morgan, middle fingers everywhere. It's it's yeah. us against the world. I'm bulletproof. I don't give a fuck. They don't make cages like they used to. He's a, he says, I've eaten so much fucking shit in this business. I almost died multiple times. Oh, that's an actual quote here. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing Yes, it. yes. The power I'm of AEW is from our fans. They're the ones who bought 10,000 tickets to All In. It's getting real big with these stadium deals, but we're not going corporate. The message <laughs> is fuck you. Middle fingers <laughs> everywhere. It's us against the world. Is he an the idiot? Is he the a message child? to our fans is fuck you. <laughs> we're not going corporate. Except for the company itself and all of its partners, and our and our owner's father with all of his other partners and anybody else that we're supposed to blow. You know, it's funny. Remember way back when they had Nick Gage on for that Jericho match because Jericho thought he would get some street cred for doing that, <clears throat> and they did the thing with street the pizza. cred. He almost ended up homeless. Well, they did the thing with the pizza cutter, and then they had the Domino's pizza commercial, and Domino's was upset, and it was a little bit of a thing. Remember Moxley came out, he's like, yo, Domino, shut up. This is cool. You know, like he was <laughs> so stupid. He didn't understand why anyone would be bothered by that. Jeez. <sighs> the MVP of AEW. All righty then. And I, did you tell me also, I've, I've forgotten, we've been going on about this, but is there other news of another AEW talent that has suffered public misfortune? Well, I mean... Trying to see where to even start with this. Apparently, Matt Hardy's Twitter got hacked, and the person has a hell of a sense of humor. Let me see where this starts. I see where it ends. Allegedly, Matt, you should just let us run the account. We brought your shit back from the dead. <laughs> shit! If I was Edge, I would have fucked Lita too. <laughs> what? You what? Now wait, what? That, what in the world? That stupid fucking sexual assaulting pedo Vince McMahon is a fraud and stole $2 million from me. Go back to touching little girls, you stupid old freak. Me and Jeff's beef was real. He fucked my wife because I made fun of his wife for having a yeast infection. Now, wait, hold now. Hashtag it's true. Hold now. Hold on just a second, for heaven's sake. And even one moment so these messages just out of the blue were allegedly coming from the twitter account of matt hardy no they were coming from the twitter account of matt hardy well that's that's what i'm saying we're uh, that's what i'm trying to say to you listen to the words that are being formed by my lips and are being emitted from my mouth they were uh, allegedly coming from Matt's official Twitter account, although he was it was someone impersonating this, but people had no knowledge of this beforehand. They just, if they follow Matt Hardy, they would have seen him say this and go, holy shit. At Tony Khan, you're a bitch. You're yeah. only relevant because of your billionaire dad. And then there's a slur there. Maybe Chris Benoit wasn't that bad. Bitches Jeez. be annoying. Should I leak the DMs of my wife, Rebby Hardy, saying the N-word? Let me know. And then there's a few words there I won't be repeating. This part here is a little funny. Sorry, everyone. I got hacked. <laughs> but I've since regained access, 
Sorry for all the vulgar tweets, messages in the past few hours. I'll be removing them and restoring my account back to normal. The next tweet, psych bitch, it's still me. You ain't getting this shit back. <laughs> uh, so apparently another wrestler, Matt Hardy, uh, is being at the reason I don't talk to Jeff anymore is because he tried to sleep with my daughter. I fucking hate my ugly ass wife, Rebby Hardy. Thanks for, thanks for sleeping with my brother, stupid bitch. Matt Hardy has hardcore midget porn in his bookmarks. Well, now, wait a minute. That's not that unusual, is it? Hardcore midget porn? Is there another well, kind of midget porn that isn't hardcore? Well, there's, there's various stages. And then you get into... Well, never. We'll talk about that off the air later on. But uh, so... It, but now people have obviously have realized that he's been hacked. And he's hacked off about it. And there is this guy still doing this as we speak? Has this been shut down? What's the current status? I am right now checking the current status as we are recording. I am scrolling down on Matt Hardy's uh, Twitter page. Well, if all of that stuff's still up there, then chances are he hadn't got a hold of it yet. Oh, no, it appears that he has gotten back to his account ah. and taken back over. As of this moment, we will see what happens for the rest of the day. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> but you know, to, that if you wanted people to think that you were somebody, you might have eased into that stuff a little bit more than just coming out with all of that, which would be somewhat uncharacteristic. And Do you think more wrestlers should do this? Just like have a meltdown on Twitter over the weekend and then say, I got hacked. But like, you know, it feels good. It's like you let it all out. You get it all out. I just do that anyway, and it's just, it's Tuesday. Well, you don't whatever. have to worry about coworkers and stuff. If you work there, and all of a sudden, like, you're on Twitter, and you're like, oh, she's a slut, she fucked this guy. <laughs> and then you're like, I got hacked, it wasn't me. I, I don't know what happened. No, it's Tourette's. Dude, Twi Cartman. Twitter Tourette's? Cartman, he just blamed Tourette's. They couldn't do anything. You fucking suck. Couldn't do anything to him. But dick, bitch, you no good whore. It couldn't do anything to him. It's a disability is what it is. And so it could be Twitter Tourette's. Twitter Tourette's. Twitter Tourette's. All righty then. Hey, Derek. <laughs> um, Someone better call Sergeant McCoy. <laughs> you know, you just, you don't know who to try. We just talked about Sports Illustrated being uh, the, the least unbiased that they have, could possibly be. And we just talked about somebody impersonifying Matt Hardy and spreading all this fake news and these false tweets. Where, oh, where can you get real, honest journalism, the real wrestling news, or the real story from reliable podcasts, trusted voices in the podcasting world? Brian, where? I can tell you exactly where. From the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, of course, get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. And you brought up the news, the wrestling news, every single day for free. Get your free daily wrestling newscast every morning. Get it directly from TheWrestlingNews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget, it's also on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Arcadian Vanguard. Want to make mention, once again this week, 
on Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam. John fell from Baltimore on the show to discuss 1983 and his upcoming move to Calgary. Hear that today at McAdamPod.com. Look for Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mothership! What was Do that? Do we have to talk about that? got a bag was... of chips? What was that? No, that was me crumpling up my notes for this program. You've taken over completely. Uh, Do we have to talk about SmackDown? I guess we do. The big world title tournament uh, is is progressing. It's progressing, or maybe it's regressing. It might be going backwards. Uh, But uh, everything happened on SmackDown this, this week. On May the 12th is the date of it. And they were in Knoxville, Tennessee. At the the big building there, Thompson Bowling, the home of the University of Tennessee. And do you realize, Brian, that this December, this Christmas, it will be 30 years ago since the first triple threat match was down the road about five or six miles at the Knoxville Civic Coliseum in the same exact town. And it's the stupidest thing I ever did. And I can't stand them now. Edge versus AJ Styles versus Rey Mysterio. So again, besides the fact that they have completely screwed up the rules of these things and it's the first person to get a pin and it's no disqualification and it's all now it's two baby faces and one heel in the ring. Do you think it'd be better if it was elimination? I hadn't thought about that. Well, of course. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what it was. Just for the people who may be newer listeners, it's my fault. Christmas of 1993 in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, I booked what I termed a triple threat match between the dirty white boy Tony Anthony and primetime Brian Lee and Tracy Smothers. Because Tracy was a full-fledged babyface, and my top babyface. Brian Lee had been a previous top babyface, but he had switched heel on Tracy Smothers. He was now a heel. And Tony Anthony was a heel that was about to switch babyface because of what was going on between him and Brian Lee. But Tony had finished a bloody and violent program just previously with Tracy Smothers. So they all three disliked each other. And that's what it was for the Smoky Mountain heavyweight title, a triple threat match. When a man's pinned, he's eliminated. The last man in the ring is the champion, is the best man, is the fucking winner. And it wasn't no disqualification because it didn't need to be because that would have been a hat on a hat. And in four years of the promotion, I booked one of these matches, one tag match, for with the midnight or the heavenly bodies, the rock and roll express and the stud stable, because it was similar situation. They all disliked each other and one singles three way. And Jesus Christ, 
There was a reason for it, but there wasn't a reason for it that often. And when I booked it, I had it in my head because if I'd have gone to the boys and said, okay, here's what were they doing. How the fuck are we going to do that? Because we hadn't had one before. So I had it in my head how that one guy could believably be wiped out of the action for a couple minutes for other shit to go on, but then there would be interplay amongst all the people that disliked each other that still fit their, their gimmick, their personalities, and nobody, it wasn't beloved Tracy Smothers teaming up with Brian Lee to beat up the dirty white boy who was the hometown guy anyway because he was from Knoxville. Shit that wouldn't make sense. And we did it once. If you did it every few years, it probably would work if there was an issue that called for it. But this has gotten out of hand. All right. End of, and then the other mistake I made was having Jim Ross do my television because he came in and did TV when we were talking about these things. And he called me up one day from the office in Stanford and said, hey, what do you call that three-way match, a triple threat? What's the rules? And then they made it first guy that gets the pin so that they could avoid people doing jobs and screwed the whole thing up because then champions can lose the title without being defeated, which is ignorant, and et cetera, et cetera. Can I continue now on this program? Yeah. Do you see I'm cranky? I'm getting cranky as we go on. Edge has cut all his hair off. And I can't older people be long-haired, brooding, hippie types too? He just, he looks so, it looks like you ought to be driving a soccer dad's van with short hair. Um, <laughs> well, no, seriously, it's it, normal people have short hair. Rock stars have long hair to go with their long coats. <laughs> Well, at least he still has a long coat. Well, but now it's even more obvious that his hair is short because his coat is long. But his coat's this, so this shiny. Is the most this is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if he got a shorter coat, would it be less bothersome to you that his hair is so short? Well, maybe he needs more vitamin C and fish oil to make his coat shinier. All right, anyway, all three of these guys are great talents, but these matches are interminable because it's just people doing shit to each other over and over and then disappearing for periods of time. But after all of that, Ray came off the top, and and Edge was apparently supposed to spear him in midair, but Edge didn't, and Ray just landed on his feet and took the bump anyway. And then Edge was kind of like, what the fuck? And AJ came off the top with the... Phenomenal forearm to edge, one, two, three. So now it's AJ Styles as advanced over either Edge or Rey Mysterio. Apparently they're going to renew, uh, you know, pushing AJ. Remember, he was kind of at flunky level for a while there. And then has he been off with an injury? Haven't seen a lot of him lately. But is it... Is it the appropriate place to start pushing somebody again, even if they're a great talent that you haven't been pushing recently when it's a brand new championship that's being established from scratch? Is my question to you. 
I mean, the AJ just got back. He's back with the OC and uh, Mia Yim. Was he ever with Mia Yim before? I don't remember, but she's with them now. I have nothing to do with their personal lives. That's not what I meant. But he's previously been a main eventer, previously been a world champion. I have no problem with him being in the picture. I get more than edge right now. I think, I think edge right now is coming off a period of time where it would be a mistake to put him in there. AJ is coming off, not being on TV. Edge is coming well, off. See, that's, that's what I'm saying. Neither one of these guys are going to win the thing. So is if, if edge went to the finals, edge is a hall of famer, blah, blah, blah. But edge could also get beat and it's not going to hurt edge. But if they've just brought AJ back and they're trying to renew a push, unless he's going to win the thing. And then, you know, and then if he wins, does he go to raw? Does he have to well, leave SmackDown? <laughs> See, that's it. He ain't going to win it anyway. But, if you know, it, it, what I'm saying is you bring him back. He's been gone for a little while. You're going to push him by having him win this three-way, and then he's about to get fucking beat shortly or sooner, you know, in, in the finals of the, the thing. But nevertheless, um... Your thoughts on the on the match, the contest? It was fine for what it was. I'm not a big three-way fan, and this wasn't anything spectacular in the <laughs> genre of the three-way matches. It was fine for what it was. I well, guess. then in that case, then I'll, I'll ask you what you thought about the next one, because if that one was just so-so, the next one wasn't as good as this one was. Uh, in my opinion, uh, Lashley, Austin Theory, and our friend Seamus. And, you know, again, if uh, it's another three-way with two baby faces and one heel, and again, having Bobby Lashley in a match where he has to keep track of a lot of different shit and be in the right place for it and help out smaller guys instead of being, you know, kill, crush, destroy, you know, it... I don't, you know, it, it, that's basically it. They, they did the same thing that they've been doing with all the other three ways. At one point, Theory just bumped over the top rope and disappeared for quite a while. They go three minutes to the break. They come back. Bobby posts Theory, and he's gone again. And I was, I was writing, Theory's the one I want to see, and he's barely in this. And finally, he got back in and beat both of them up for a minute, and then... You know, Seamus made a comeback on Theory and gave him his finish off the ropes and got a two count. And in Theory threw Lashley into the stairs and Lashley took the fucking stairs literally head first and busted his own head open in the stairs. Did you see that? I did. And so then Lashley got to hurt lock on Theory but Seamus went for the big kick. Lashley turned Theory into the kick, boom, and then dumped Seamus and pinned Theory, one, two, three. So they apparently are not going to use this to try to elevate our boy Austin any further. And it's, it's Bobby again out there by himself looking great and needing dressing around him to look like a star and come across like one. Uh, so now it's the the finals are going to be um uh what are the fi oh the finals later on in the night 
is AJ against Lashley, which I was at least looking forward to that because that'd probably be the best Lashley had looked in a while. But again, this match, just the same thing. Does this feel like a big, important world championship? We just heard about it 10 days ago, the whole concept of it. Yeah, and I'm kind of sick of seeing Theory and Lashley. We just saw them in another three-way against Bronson Reed at the pay-per-view. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I'm kind of sick of Lashley. I don't think it works at all right now. Him as a babyface with no manager is just... He looks great. He could do great stuff in the ring, but there's nothing else right now. Sheamus I've been sick of for a while. And then Theory's great, but I'm sick of seeing Theory in there with Lashley. So I kind of didn't like this match. <laughs> Well, did you see the debut of our old friend from when NXT was watchable, Cameron Grimes? I did see this, yes. And folks, if you didn't, basically, they, they've kind of tidied him up. The way we like Cameron Grimes was with his hair all out long and his fucking beard out and all of his body hair. I mean, it, the fucking hair out of his nostrils was three inches long. It was fucking great. He's had got a ton of personality. And every time they shave his body or cut his beard or whatever, he looks pale and like some fucking job guy. Well, now they've, they've got him groomed somewhat, but he still has hair in a lot of places. That's the only way I can describe it. But he didn't look as bad as he did when they just looked like they waxed him. But apparently, well, I don't know whether they got any plans for him or not because his opponent was Baron Von Corbin. And they've been literally tormenting Corbin and cursing the ground he walks on by humiliating him for weeks now. Won't let him speak, never wins a match, so it could just be Cameron's one of many, but they have the match, the bell rings to start the match. Grimes does his big leap and his double stomp to the chest they call the cave-in, because he used to look like a caveman, and boom, one, two, three. So he beat Baron Von Corbin in three seconds. Analyze that contest, Brian. They didn't waste any time with Cameron Grimes. They gave him a clean win. They made sure he didn't have a competitive match with a man who's been presented like a fool for a long time. Hopefully this ends that and he can move on, but I'm sure it'll now be a month of him and Cameron Grimes doing bad comedy and having more matches. No, I think they'll, they'll move on because they don't want to give Corbin that much TV time. They don't want to have him say anything that might be remotely enjoyed but okay here's the the big one and then we'll get to the main event the entire bloodline was live in the ring for a promo roman reigns was insanely over for this crowd and well he's insanely over i could have put a period on it there and he said there was only one royal family in wrestling and only one family that will ever main event both nights at wrestlemania and that obviously is his. So, and well, no, go ahead. Again, interesting though, he's directly by saying that, directly taking a shot at Cody, who we're being led to believe he's not going to be wrestling anytime soon. Well, Cody's not going to main event both nights of WrestleMania anyway. I'm talking about the more than one royal family. Line. Well, yes, yes. But okay, well, what about what about that? What about next year? Cody make up for losing this year. Cody gets to main event both nights. And then the Usos versus Dustin and Brandy. There you go. Well, I don't know. Brandy, she might not want to do the job. She should. Um, she should win. Well, but Dustin's 
you know, getting over the hill now. I don't know whether he can hold his part up. Anyway, Roman Reigns put Solo over like a million dollars. At Backlash, who stepped up? He eliminates problems. He eliminated Riddle. You know, he, he sink or swim, he swims like a shark. And then Roman brought up the Owens and Sammy problem. Or no, actually, he didn't. Solo said something that off microphone. And Roman says, well, Owens and Sammy aren't the problem. It's your brothers that are the problem. And then the Usos turn around like, what? And he got up in their face, and this was a nice fucking promo. You lost at WrestleMania. You dedicated your title match to me at Backlash, and you lost that. I'm not even in a tag team. You disrespected our bloodline. You embarrassed me. He jumped all over them. And... <sighs> Which I can never keep track when they're standing next to each other without an announcer calling one or the other, which one's Jimmy and which one's Jay? Which one was smiling and which one wasn't? Jay is the one with the shorter hair now. Jimmy's the one who Roman was kind of getting on here. Well, that is, but who was smiling at first? Jimmy, I think. With Jimmy, okay. That's, well, then okay. Well, nevertheless... The point is, Jay was kind of pissed off facially, but Jimmy was kind of doing the embarrassed smiling thing. And Roman is like demanding apologize to me. No, no, no. The next thing I need to hear out of either one of your mouths is I'm sorry or I apologize to you, my tribal chief. And then fucking Roman shoved Jimmy because he was laughing. Oh, you think I'm a clown? Now that they were doing the commercial, the Goodfellas thing for WrestleMania. I'm a, I'm here to amuse you. And he got all over him. But then both the Usos kind of got serious. And there was a long audio mute in the middle of this. I don't know who could have said what, but it was, it was lengthy. And then it was Jay that apologized, but Jimmy wasn't happy, right? Or vice versa. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Point is, one of them apologized, one of them still not happy, and Romans... Romans Jay apologized for Jimmy, on behalf of Jimmy. Right. On behalf of Jimmy. And Roman was staring a hole through him, and Paulie gets the microphone and announces, at Night of Champions, we're going to finish this tag team title situation. It's going to be Zayn and Owens versus... Solo and the Usos perk up and Roman and the Usos are bullshit and Roman dedicates the title win that they're going to have to Afa and Sika, the wild Samoans. Here's the problem, Brian. Now that they've backed themselves into somewhat of a corner, setting precedence in other areas, how does this make sense when They've just announced that one of the main reasons mentioned by them was that they were they're starting a new world title is because Roman Reigns has negotiated where he barely ever has to defend. So how did the same company agree to give him a chance at another world title that he will then, <laughs> by process point. of elimination, never fucking defend? That is a great point. So otherwise than that, see, we need somebody on top of these things up there. So, you know, maybe get Stephen P. New on the case. He's detail-oriented. But that, uh, 
so anyway, yes, I like the idea of swerving the Usos and having Roman in another way to use Roman without having a singles challenger ready. But for the tag team title, then they've kind of shot themselves in the foot with what they just said over on the other program last week, right? Also burying one of the leads. I guess Sami Zayn's going to Saudi Arabia. Well, maybe he will and maybe he won't. And we we don't know. Unless, they, unless the Usos somehow won the tag titles before then and then they would wrestle Roman and so potentially he could get run over in the parking lot. That happens about three times a week in wrestling. <laughs> That's or, true. That's true. Right. Or, you know, whatever the case, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying they're going to false advertise right up until the moment, but if he hasn't wanted to go before, why would he want to go now? But at the same time, maybe he doesn't have, maybe there's some swerve yet to come or whatever. I don't know. The problem is we don't see Roman at all. They build up that Roman's going to be on SmackDown, and it's still something that stands out. You know, even if you get past the entrance, just him in the ring, the reaction he gets, the way he carries himself, Heyman, I've been a fan of Solo so far. I think he's been great. And all the drama with the Usos. But it's taken us, what, a month and a half to get from the last point to here. Everything's going really, really slow right now. Nothing has felt like it's worked since WrestleMania. It was cool to see Roman here, but are we going to see him on next week's show? Are we going to see him on the week after that? Or is it going to be that he pops in once a month to further this thing along so that like his title reign, where they could say it's a thousand days and he's defended it 25 times in a thousand days, they could say that the bloodline's going for another year, but three things happen in one year. Well, there's one flaw in your proposition there. The way that you presented that is he can't not show up because May 27th is Night of Champions, right? So it's about 11, 12 days away. He pretty much has to be on TV again next week or he ain't going to make it. Don't you think? I don't know. Night of Legends, uh, that's a Saturday afternoon, I think we have to Not watch, Night right? of Legends now, God, I'll sue them. What did you say? Night of Champions. Night of Champions. Yeah, but I mean, do you understand what I'm saying, though? It just feels like nothing's happening with any of this oh, stuff. Oh, no, I, I definitely agree with you there. It, especially when, you know, it's five hours of television a week to get what we get. But anyway, speaking of which... <laughs> poor Bianca Belair. I got to, before we go to the main event, the, the title elimination final match of the winner is SmackDown representative in a tournament for a Raw title or whatever the fuck. Bianca Belair goes to Puerto Rico last week and gets the goddamnedest, most negative reaction, reception, booed out of the building. People wanted, you know, old uh, EO to, to just kick her ass, right? And then. She comes back to friendly country, her alma mater. She went to the University of Tennessee. She's, you know, considered a hometown. She gets the big homecoming celebration. They had the orange balloons, Tennessee volunteer colors. This big music entrance, the big balloons, the whole nine yards. And before she can say a fucking word, Oscar comes out shakes her hand and spits mist in her face and fucking walks off and leaves her. 
What has Bianca done lately? They won't. It, at least she could have said, oh, thank you all. I used to go here to this school or something. Maybe they were running tight on time. Well, goddamn, I can think of a couple of other things they could have shortened up earlier in this program just to give her an extra 26 seconds. You know, Asuka came out there no makeup on or no, um, you know, uh, character makeup on, I guess. No, no she say. had no lipstick, no rouge, no eyeliner. You know what I mean. She came out there and they did this, obviously setting up. It's an angle to set up a match. Probably pretty good. My biggest issue was from the moment Asuka came out there, it was clear she had shit in her mouth. <laughs> you know, like when you like take a drink of water and you just hold it in your no, mouth, and you can I tell. Thought, I thought she'd just been to the dentist and the Novocaine hadn't worn was, off. That was the biggest issue. I, I'm okay with all this good angle. Uh, Bianca selling like crazy the way she was selling. <laughs> it was great. But you could tell she had the shit in her mouth that she blows in everyone's face. <laughs> she walked out there with like two puffy cheeks filled with shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because she covered Bianca. She had about six gallons in her gullet. <laughs> so that's that's my biggest issue with it. You never saw the great Kabuki come out there with loaded cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, she looked like Louis Armstrong with the fucking trumpet cheeks. Um, yeah, the whole thing was like, man, when in the match did Muda get a chance to do this? I can't believe it. It's it's amazing. Hershey just came out there like, all right, <laughs> let's let's do it. We'll see. <laughs> like I said, the mist didn't look good because she covered her. And when you think about it, it and I'll tell you the difference in how they obviously did it, but hers didn't look like a Muda mist or a Kabuki mist. It looked like projectile vomiting of fucking St. Patrick's Day or something. And the thing is, we've talked about it before. It's not like I'm breaking new ground here. The The way that the the uh what's the proper term these days from the east the the mystical eastern warriors like kabuki and muta the the way that they blew the mist was it's food coloring in a condom and either you have the referee pass it or your manager pass it or whatever gary hart was a sleight of hand artist with things like that and blades and things he had so much practice and you bite the thing and you've got the food and you spit the, the mist. There, by the nature of that, there was never a case where you could get enough <laughs> in your mouth to puff your cheeks out unless they used one of those goddamn Magnum condoms and, and filled the thing up to the point where it looked like Gary Hart was shoving a green dildo down his fucking gullet. Hey, did a, did a condom just come out of Muda's mouth? What's yeah. going on? <laughs> well, and that's happened too. <laughs> no, that's happened. Not only that, but it's the same way with blood. Remember, I've, we've talked about this, when a karate thrust to the throat or a tennis racket to the throat, or you uh, jump on somebody's stomach or hit them with a sledgehammer or whatever the fuck, if you want somebody to internal bleeding, it, it, instead of food coloring, you can tell because it stains your skin when it gets on it and it looks odd and off. It's not the right thickness, etc. I can do pretty good uh, with a mixture of food coloring and honey and a couple of other secret ingredients, but that's just if you need... I, I refuse to use fake blood in an actual wrestling match, but if there's something that needs to be done backstage, we don't want people just fucking, you know, gigging themselves. But um, 
the the same thing was you would draw a guy's blood whoever was going to bite it it wouldn't be somebody else's blood you'd take a syringe draw his blood shoot it in a fucking condom tie it off and put it in a bucket of warm water so it doesn't fucking clot until and i don't mean all day like on the porch of funk and wagnalls in a mayonnaise jar i mean for the you know, if, if, if however many minutes it takes to get ready, go out and have the fucking match, and then the manager carries it in his pocket or the referee or whatever, and you slip it in at the appropriate time. It may but, be difficult in modern times to, you know, be in the back and say, hey, who has a condom? Not everyone may answer. Well, no, you. I'm not talking about for fucking around. You used to carry those around for wrestling fucking. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know none of these guys are getting laid. Couldn't get a date on a tombstone, any of them. But I'm talking, you, you always would keep your blades or your condoms or your fucking powder or your plastic bags for powder or your chain or your knucks or you... Yeah, I had a variety of implements in my traveling bag in the old days. But anyway, so then the main event of the evening came up on SmackDown, which was the final match between the two winners of the previous two triple threat matches to determine who's going to go to Night of Champions and face the guy who won two triple threat matches and another match on Raw on Monday. Jesus Christ. And uh, basically, it was AJ and Bobby Lashley, and they had managed to stop the bleeding where Bobby had run headfirst into the steel stairs, but he had, did you see the big old knot on his head? Yeah, and, oh yeah. And again, I've, I was at matches as a photographer or as a fan three days a week for several years at minimum. And then I was on the road with, and I mean, it's not like Mid-South Wrestling or Crockett Promotions were exactly, you know, soft wrestling or the, you know, WWE cartoon type of eight-minute match or whatever. Those guys did a lot of shit. I wouldn't see as many hard ways in a fucking year as I've seen on television in the last month. Uh, but anyway, um. They had a good match. AJ is the right kind of opponent for Bobby. He's smaller and quicker and a, a heel that can bump around and then come out of nowhere with a big high-impact move or off the top or whatever that can believably do damage to Bobby Lashley. But having said that, it was mostly this was a regular Raw or SmackDown match, except that Bobby started bleeding again, which gave it a little bit more drama. But, you know, they went two minutes to the break when they got started. And then they came back and had the rest of the match. And finally, Bobby went for the spear. AJ moved. He hit the post. AJ hit the forearm off the top. One, two, three. And so it's AJ versus Seth Franklin Rollins at the pay-per-view for the new, improved, restaurant-quality, gourmet world heavyweight title that they have created. and. I got to think we're in for another well when you know who won the pony moment. I think a lot of people were saying, well, it's probably going to be Seth. I think it may be Seth. Don't you think it may be old Franklin? I think it has to be Franklin at this point. I think things have kind of been pointing in that direction. 
I think it should be a good match, all things considered, even though it'll be airing in the middle of the day from Saudi Arabia. That's never a fun time to watch wrestling. But I think it's going to be Rollins. If you're Rollins in kayfabe, why wouldn't you immediately win the belt and say, all right, I'll see you in a month. I'm going to work Roman's schedule. <laughs> they let him do it. I'm going to do it too. And then they have to create a, They should have to keep creating another world champion over and over again. Well, and also here, another clue is the guy, they just had a draft. And the guy that they just sent to SmackDown is wrestling a guy that they just sent to Raw or is on Raw for a title that they've said will be exclusive to Raw. Right. No Raw. The other thing I'll say is if Cody and Roman is still the big picture that they're going to get to, we assume. And not all assumptions are safe when it comes to Vince McMahon. Rollins being one champion and Roman's being the other, if they do interact, if it's not just Rollins having his own universe on Raw, there's something interesting there. Both guys from The Shield, both guys are now world champion, very different personalities on camera. There's probably something that could be done there, but if one's going to be kept exclusively on Raw and Roman's going to work one time every six weeks, he not even work. He's going to do a promo one, once in every six weeks and then maybe work. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But there's something there for Rollins and Roman. They were teasing it with Rollins and Heyman on Raw a few weeks ago. Can you imagine the promos Roman could cut on Franklin when he said, look at you. What have you become since we were together? Look at you. The state of you. I, with that shit-sniffing look he gets on his face. I thought it was bad enough when Ambrose left to become a plumber. But look at you. <laughs> look at you. Look at you. You're a costume designer. <laughs> All right, well, that was the incomparable episode of SmackDown. And now we, uh, we make the big plans for the, the date with destiny that AJ and Seth Franklin have in Saudi Arabia. We have a couple of big shows coming up in terms of scheduling. We have the Saudi Arabia show. The AEW pay-per-view is what, two weeks away? Uh, it's, a, it's day after the day after. It's, oh, is it? One, one's the one day and one's the next day. You know what I'm trying to say. I didn't even realize that, no. Well, smarten up here. Listen to me. I'll guide you. Hey, what's the lineup for the AWP? It's MJF versus the other pillars. Yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll investigate that lineup and talk to you about it on the drive-thru. Have they announced the lineup? Is there any I lineup for that pay-per-view? I tuned out when I found out we weren't going to get MJF and Darby. Well, you'll be tuning back in for the drive-thru this week. Are you trying to close my show? I was trying to set you on that path. All righty. Well, in that case, folks, we will be back on the drive-thru this coming week. And, and we're adding fish nibblers to the menu on the drive-thru this week. And otherwise, hey, Derek, thank you. Fuck you. And bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo
A Trojan ally at the top of a car He trained himself in his own backyard And this is shit everyone should get Well everyone except Jim Cornette Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Who needs women for hanging round in bars When you can watch the Bucks get seven stars the box turn seven stars Dynamite's the word Best ever tag team division Haven't you heard? We've got Jericho Orange Cassidy and Michael Rio Like Tony Iger fantasy booking A title tournament now we're cooking Goes all the way Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, don't come in Go away, I'm watching wrestling Go away, I'm watching wrestling oh, This is wrestling heaven don't listen to Corgi, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Spock the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, man, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Elsa says I'm in the key demo I 